This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the temple of Seth? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to gain and have such a material motive. today we're back with another Q&A from the Grotto of Truth. Yes. For the all-water uh, frequency. Yeah, just to shill Alwara, like, uh, what, you definitely should subscribe, uh, not just because you'll get access to our, uh, you know, locked episodes, but also, like, you'll get to have access to the Grotto, which really is uh, a huge perk. Like, there's uh, tons of, like, uh, stimulating, interesting conversation on on these topics happening in the grotto all the time. Uh, you know, it is quite uh, stimulating. I'm very impressed. Yes. I'm very impressed with uh, the it's acolytes. It's hard to keep up with, honestly, a lot of the time. It like, is. Uh, yeah, the people are very active, you know, always uh, discussing and bringing interesting things to the table that, like, you know, I haven't heard about, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, um, it's definitely a, a thriving and interesting conversation happening in the grotto. So, uh, shout out to the grotto um, and yeah yeah this uh, uh, these apps would not be possible without y'all and uh, yeah definitely yeah. They would. and uh, if you gain access to the grotto of truth then you know to paraphrase uh, Kenneth Anger uh, we're your puppet so yeah whatever you ask true. us we basically have to address on these episodes uh, which yeah. you know is exciting mm-hmm. sometimes it's it's it, I guess it can be exciting sometimes to be somebody's puppet um, you know, uh, better, yeah, better, well. better the Grotto's puppet than the CIA's puppet, like probably mm-hmm. so many other podcasts. Um. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's nice. That's true. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, I guess uh, it depends on the question. I mean, if we get one that's, uh, I guess you could you could subscribe to Alwara and try to push the envelope and see if you can answer the question that we won't address. Uh, <laughs> but for the time being, uh, we're batting a thousand and we've, we've, we're taking them all on, so... Uh, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, my philosophy is even if we don't address it, we will address that we are not addressing it. And, yeah. you know, um, I feel like that, that's a certain code we have to live by. Yeah, I mean, depending on if the podcast gets, uh, you know, uh, more and more followers, uh, then, uh, you know, there might start to be a backlog. But we'll try to we'll try to tackle all of them uh, at some point. You know, our last Q&A was uh, pretty long, although I think that... Uh, it's uh, i think it might still hold our length record even when bigfoot comes out um but uh we'll see bigfoot yeah. reaches for it for sure um, yeah but if yeah. we do get if we do get a you know 
a Patreon subscriber who slides into the questions subchat and starts posting in any ancient Ethiopian scripts uh, with pictures of Baphomet or yeah. Lady Gaga and Ariana Grande uh, twisted into demonic postures uh, cursing us, then, well, I mean, I think we definitely would have to address it even then, but... Well, we um, have... Uh, yeah, we would definitely bring it up uh, if that happens, uh, but we have uh, Bismillah uh, in the um, Subliminal Jihad work flowy, so we're protected. Uh, for a while... True, uh, true. We were being cursed because I was having trouble opening some of our uh, some of our flow charts, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was it was after we had done a lot of heavy occult, occult episodes. Uh, true, you know, true. Uh, about like uh, 09A and stuff. So, uh, mm-hmm. but once we put the Bismillah in there, you know, uh, no one has bothered us. So you're right. It's it's been working perfectly. Um, yeah. So you know, take from that uh, what you will. But uh, yep. but yeah. Okay. So uh, I don't know. Should we just uh, should we just dive in and like get started? Yeah. Let's get started. Let's uh, yeah. Let's definitely not uh, pussyfoot around because uh, we know how these things can sprawl. But we'll see if we can do. We got some good meaty time. meaty questions yeah. today from the grotto. So um, uh, do yeah. You do, would you like yeah. to start with number one? Sure, I guess. Uh, all right. Uh, Trolley Snatcha, who I think we had fielded some questions from, from before, asks, uh, my question is, what are Dimitri and Khaled into music-wise? Uh, what are, say, the three artists they have on rotation at the moment? Also, uh, what was that haunting mumbling tune played around the first half hour of the 09 AF? Uh, it's still <laughs> bugging me, so I'm bugging you. Bonus question, apart from MK Ultra, what other program do you think never actually stopped? Okay, so this is really two questions in one, but okay, uh, we can, but we can do it. can't answer all of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I have, like, really I, bad music tastes. Like, Dimitri uh, has definitely, like, is definitely more of, like, a music connoisseur, uh, or, you know, uh, definitely most of the music that you hear in the episodes is, is Dimitri. The Salem Witch Trial episodes, most of that was from an album that I recommended, uh, you know, if you listen to these, like, uh, this weird, like, folk dude, like, this folk, like, historian dude, like, singing these old New England, uh, songs about, like, witch trials, like, from, you know, so long ago that they were actually talking about, like, you know, how the people were witches and they deserved it, you know, like, uh, Mm -hmm. that, like, I had just listened to that for fun, like, years ago, you know, I just had that, like, I remembered that because I would, like, walk around listening to that, uh, for my own amusement, uh, like, uh, I think we were saying a little bit, before that uh you know a lot of the heavy rotation has to do with the podcast like if i'm looking at my spotify right now i see a lot of bigfoot stuff because i've been recommending some music (laughs) for the bigfoot episode um Mm -hmm. i have a ufo by jim sullivan is on here uh he was uh um i don't know i feel like he could be a potentially good episode because uh oh yeah 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 he disappeared mysteriously and uh you know no one knows where he went but his album is, is pretty good you know it's uh, got decent production values and some uh songs about yeah. uh you know uh, or that have sort of an eerie vibe to them that's uh here uh yeah i guess i was listening to the new sufyan i admit it um you know i didn't <laughs> i didn't think it's a, a lot but uh you know um i i did listen to it i haven't it hasn't really been in my heavy rotation uh lately mm-hmm. and i really i don't listen to music every day or anything you know so uh yeah but yeah i liked the, the song video game off of that that would be my that would be my cut from that album um okay. and uh yeah i was listening to uh the song of our maker uh by alan jones with sammy yusuf uh which i guess mm-hmm. is like a collaboration between sammy yusuf of course who we know is like this uh kind of almost a little bit like uh 
I mean, he's kind of cringy by, like, normal standards. Again, like, my taste in music, it's pretty bad. Like, you know, he's one of the better, <laughs> like, Muslim, uh, like, music artists, like, as these things go. But he's still kind of cringy by normal standards. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, he's not, like, hardcore. He's very much, like, sort of, uh, you know, uh, yeah, like this, uh, this dude. He's, uh, like, a very pop kind of uh i mean you can listen to for yourself it's pop by muslim standards i guess but uh mm-hmm, anyway mm-hmm. like uh i guess he did this collaboration with some like uh christian uh singer uh which is just about god in general so i'd listen to that uh yeah and then <laughs> you know um <laughs> yeah. yeah so there you go and then i was listening to some three six mafia for the for the episode that we did about that you know uh mm-hmm. yeah I, uh when i was listening like uh, thinking of old songs for the sandwich trial episode i listened to uh the Devil's Nine Questions, you know, or, or Riddles Wisely Expounded, which is a, mm-hmm. a classic, you know, I, I like folk music. Uh, I like sort of the, the mystery of folk songs, uh, you know, uh, especially about the, that have kind of an, an eerie vibe, you know, uh, with these uh, sort of topics. Like uh, one album that I, I've, I've always, I've listened to for years is uh, The Wheel of the Year, 30 Years with the Armstrong Family. <laughs> wow. Uh, so yeah, you can hear their take on The Ghost of John, on uh, John Barleycorn, uh, on wow. uh, a pretty crowing chicken, uh, lay the band. Lay the band is a is a great one because that is basically where Vlad's expounded. Um, you know, uh, it's about like these three sisters and a mysterious man comes to their house and uh, he, you know, basically is the devil in disguise. You know, and he asks them these questions. Uh, you know, I won't spoil the song, but uh, you you might want to listen to it. Yeah, and I think okay. their version, uh, lay the band by the Armstrong family, is pretty good. But uh anyway so yeah that's my answer to the question my music taste is you know it's pretty eclectic it's pretty bad and I, I don't really listen to music uh that much because like it's hard for me to work when i'm listening to music like to write and so it's like you know uh it's hard to focus for me uh but yeah interesting anyway, interesting uh, yeah people yeah, cut I don't different like ways with, with that, it so, so much yeah 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 mm-hmm. like well yeah i'm trying to it's hard for me to like you know think of the right words in general but like you know i try to minimize my distractions but anyway yeah uh so that's yeah. my answer i guess uh yeah, I think I addressed that pretty well enough. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I mean, don't know what that mumbling did you say, is, but you would know that. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I was actually just looking it up. Um, well, I guess, did you say the three artists you have on rotation at the moment, if you have to pin yourself down? Um, okay, well, I did listen to, well, I don't have, like, artists on rotation. I guess, you know, I did listen to Taylor Swift's new album. I admit it. I, I listen to Folklore, <laughs> uh, which I liked. Uh, you know, I think it's pretty good, like, uh, for, for a Taylor album. Um, and, uh, yeah, the one that I listened to most recently, I guess, was the new Sufjan. This is so, like, cringe and lame, but, and I also listened to, I listened to the new Bright Eyes, I admit it. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I did, around the time that we started this, uh, podcast, uh, I listened to that one night, all, completely all the way through, and I remember being struck as, like, I was quite, I don't know, I was I was quite impressed by it. I thought it was it's pretty good. It's definitely the best thing that he's done in a while, you know. In a while, uh, yeah. But, and yet, yeah, I don't know if I it's just the his, moment. I, I haven't gone back and listened Phoebe to it Bridgers. once. I don't know oh, if you okay. listened to the album they did with Phoebe Bridgers before that. It was called, like, the, you know, something. It was some kind of, like, long, annoying name but uh, for the album uh-huh. and for the group. But he did, like, a sort of, uh, you know, a duet album with her that I also thought was pretty good. But, yeah, a lot of his stuff is language for a while. But... No, I, I mean, I, I haven't listened to that very heavily. I'm just talking about, you know, these are, like, entire albums that I kind of had to uh, give a listen to. You know, I was re-listening to, like I said, I was listening to Sammy Yusuf's, uh, you know, uh, old albums, like, a while ago. I was listening to his, uh, you know, uh, The Center, <laughs> his album from mm-hmm. 2014, I guess I was listening to a couple days ago. But again, like, you know, uh, listening to music isn't, like, a necessarily daily 
uh, routine for me. But uh, yeah, and I tried to listen to the new Sufjan, but that also kind of fell away. Um, same with the, the Braves album. I listened to that a couple times, but yeah, probably the ones that I actually re- like listened to multiple times would be Folklore, uh, The Ascension, <laughs> uh, and the, yeah. whatever the new Bright Eyes album was, although I forget the name of it even now. Uh, but yeah. Me too. Um, I can't remember the name of it either, but I remember it, it kind of capturing a, a mood in the pandemic and it felt, yeah. uh, I don't know, it felt yeah, apropos. It felt like felt like the old bright eyes that, you know, w- was kind of stirring shit up in the mid 2000s because I was, I did become a bright eyes head, you know, in, yeah. I, I wasn't super, I wasn't like well, we fears and we mirrors, but like, generation. you weren't, yes. fevers and mirrors are the best one. Uh, I know. I mean, it's know. great, but I, but I mean, I first, like I became kind of aware of him probably around I'm wide awake. It's morning. And like when I was oh, in high school mm, and wow, you're not a real head then, I guess. Yeah, right, whatever. I okay. I did real, see him twice. I saw him, uh, I've seen him twice live in, yeah. in that period. And, uh, you know, he was, uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, it, yeah. I, I was pretty. I had had a couple on vinyl, you know. I had them wide awake. Yeah, I remember you had them wide awake on vinyl. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, uh, I might still have it. I'm not sure. Uh, I might have sold it uh, years yeah. later. But uh, but you know that that was. And I remember him being because he. It feels so weird and anachronistic, like a million years ago, that Bright Eyes was one of the few artists that really did kind of like try to make himself kind of like this Bob Dylan artist in the two yeah, thousands against that's what everyone like when the president the talks to Dylan, God, you know? Yeah. Yeah. About we- that, you know? Yeah. I mean, well, that's the thing. Like he was a great lyricist, but yeah. what his lyrics were really about was like, you know what I think, and this isn't necessarily like, you know, uh, important or like, uh, good or anything or like, you know, like a good use of time, but his like lyrics about being sad and like, uh, you know, being a teenager, kind of a young person, uh, back, like the Fever's Mares era, that was what he really was a true auteur of. And I think that there was oh, some of that sure. of Ennui and Despair on oh, yeah, the yeah. Beast, Where the World Once Was, which was the name of the new album, which I, I have to look up. But uh, yeah. Uh, it, I mean, it definitely takes it up to like he's he in his late the... 30s now and he still has the Ennui, but he's like, you know, yeah. it, 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 it like, still checks out, yeah. I think. When he did some of his political stuff, I felt like it was a little bit like, eh, he was kind of out of his element. Like, I didn't really like when the president talks to God. I thought that was like, I didn't like lame. it either. I, I thought that was probably yeah. one of the more cringy Even though the time songs. I was like, he's talking to God, like you think God is, re-, you know, like uh, at the time I would have been like on board with the message of the song, but uh, yeah, still I mean, I think he, he had some other ones that I, I think in a way to wake it's morning, you know, he sort of like painted with the colors of kind of this like anti-war kind of um, environment yeah, yeah. Of, of the, mm-hmm. and I think maybe my favorite of his, or maybe the one I thought was the most effective was let's not shit ourselves from lifted mm-hmm. where, you know, you know, we're yeah, still the know, pawns. Amy said album. he literally says we're still the pawns in their game, like a direct yeah. reference to Dylan and kind of, I felt but like, but I feel like he was really reaching for, but it's also about suicide, like a suicide yeah, attempt. It's also an amazing narrative story about like, you know, uh, what, yeah, he tries to commit suicide and he sees his father in the hospital. Like, yeah, uh-huh. that's a, you know, really, yeah, that's a great song. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a it kind had, of a great synthesis of those two uh currents yeah. and connor oberst yeah yeah yeah, yeah right and uh for sure and i feel like when you know i maybe he got a little bit swept up in the new dylan stuff and i think also there was some drugs wow this is really becoming a, there were a lot of there discussion were, but yeah. it's okay though i think um, i think you know yeah, it's fine because i think because yeah. well, I, I think we were both really into him yeah yeah uh we were both yeah i think it, we I have mean, to I acknowledge was more than you uh if you came in during the unwide awake era 
you know, I was, I love Fever's Mirrors. To this day, I think Fever's Mirrors, that's the most cohesive and like, you know, that's no skips, no skips on Fever's Mirrors, <laughs> you know, at all. No, it's a great uh, album. It's a great album. Yeah. And uh, especially mm-hmm. some of his early lo-fi kind of stuff is, uh, is there's some really fantastic songs yeah, on it. Yeah, there is. And, uh, yeah. and for, for being such a young kid, uh, making that kind of level of music was also, I mean, he was, he did have the kind yeah, of weight of like being a way, prodigy. Yeah. Also, mm-hmm. I just, you know, tangentially, we're going yeah you know we're going through the whole franklin episode the other week and i just think it's interesting that connor (laughs) overs is from omaha and was like a depressive like kind of on uh, on the outs like uh you know catholic school boy getting kind of into trouble and and I don't I'm not saying there's any connection between like Franklin. <laughs> he would have been a, probably a little bit. Well, I don't know if he would have been too young, but he would have been a little kid like in the 80s in Omaha. And th- it, it's always been an interesting link in my mind. Once I sort of knew more about Franklin, sometimes going back to Bright Eyes and those very young recordings and the kind of um like, um, you know, uh, kind of home on the range, like middle American angst of like this young guy. And it kind of thematically like fits, even though if there's actually no connection to it whatsoever. Like, I wonder if Connor Oberst is like aware of the Franklin scandal and if it kind of like informed him, if it like disturbed. I don't know if it was was it in the air in Omaha when he was young that gave him this extra gloss of like there. there's kind of this this all American kind of suburban uh dream is actually a nightmare and it's horrible and i just want to like run away from it and escape and i have this like endless chasm of despair inside of me and i don't know like uh yeah uh i mean maybe like uh, he did have the the death of parasitos you know the like uh his sort of like punk project that was more political i feel like there was maybe some vibes there and there were some songs about like omaha like the gentrification i guess of omaha greater omaha was one of the songs right right yeah Yeah, greater omaha Um, yeah did you ever listen to any of the other uh like saddle creek records did you ever listen to cursive or uh, uh, i was no, never really into a lot cursive. of people never made the jump to cursive but i did yeah. well i i saw them do uh their ugly organ like reunion tour like yeah uh-huh. uh, you know it was years ago now but it must have been like in 2000 like uh uh i don't like 15 maybe but yeah that mm-hmm. was like probably the best concert experience i ever had it was like the one like truly like you know, dope experience of seeing a band live. But yeah, I was like, uh, you were saying about the Franklin thing. I remember there's a song by uh, The Good Life, which is like the side project of the guy. Oh, yeah, the yeah. Uh, where, I remember that uh, you song. Know, I was a fan Inmates. of that song. Uh, yeah. Oh my God, yeah. dude. I, yeah, I have a whole. Yeah. It, that song was like the emo thing. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. well, I'm not yeah, even going to yeah, get yeah. into it. But, but anyway, like 2007, yeah, so like, you might even yeah, remember. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. There, um, <laughs> yeah, no, I love Inmates in 2007, too. And uh, there's a song yeah. on uh, that where, you know, uh, it's, I think actually it's even like uh, a woman singing. And she's, you know, like kind yeah, like of a breakup sort of a dialogue between, yeah, her and her lover about like the the well, they're inmates because they're like trapped in this like relationship that is unhappy. Yep. And she's saying like, you know, why haven't you left me? And she's saying like, uh, she says, there's a Greyhound on Jackson Street. There's an airport in Council Bluffs. You know, like all listing all the ways that like he could leave. Yes. And I'm like, how many like you know evil like pedo uh, operations <laughs> have been run out of that airport? You know, out of the Council <laughs> Bluffs airport. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah, but it like you know, Benassi I definitely. There. Yeah, I definitely thought of that song like in all the mentions of Council Bluffs uh, in you know uh, the the Franklin stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. It's it's a, it's a fascinating. 
it, it's fascinating that they had such a robust little music scene with Saddle Creek in, I mean, yeah. I, I went to, I've only been to Omaha, I've been to Omaha and I only went there once for a job, uh, probably like 10 years ago and was just mm-hmm. there like for a weekend, but got the opportunity to like go out at night and, uh, my coworkers and I, uh, like we had a great time in Omaha. Like we were actually, we went around to a lot of kind of boring American cities on the scale, you know, like Concord, New Hampshire, Indianapolis, uh, you know, places like, you know, uh, Springfield, Massachusetts, like not the most exciting places, but like Omaha was like kind of lit. Like we were, and I, 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 that was probably right before I had ever seen like conspiracy of silence. So I had no idea that, you know, we went to like the Omaha steaks, like house where Warren Buffett goes. And it just had this like kind of, you know, down home, like, you know, free range kind of, uh, but, but kind of a scruffy party side. Like it was more of like a party town than I think any of us anticipated. Like the bars were popping in a big way. Um, I don't know if we would have seen that one gay bar that, uh, that Larry King and Rusty Nelson hung out at all the time. But, uh, (laughs) but you know, we were probably right around there and like downtown Omaha, but I always had like kind of good. uh, And then, you know, thinking about like bright eyes coming out of there, it was like, you know, Omaha kind of like, you know, punches above its weight in like kind of culture and like nightlife. And then I found out like, dear God, like, um, (laughs) Oh, they punch way above their weight in a lot of really bad ways. Um, Mm. but yeah, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, bright eyes, formative influence. Um, I guess just to, to, to get to like my taste in music, um, like you kind of alluded to, uh, I, 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 you know, I, I, I select most of the songs for the interludes on the show, which like, to be perfectly honest, is like one of the most exciting things that I get to, it's like a perk. It's like really fun for me to try to find. And I, I really do try to be as subliminal as possible in the kind of, um, either historical or thematic context of like the music, uh, that, that, I slip in there um even if like it's real I'm really just picking it because the song title has like a pun that is like related (laughs) to the subject we're talking about but I really try I figure you know and uh thank god nobody has uh well we'll find out when we do uh I'll get to that in a second but like our Eagles episode whether Don Henley will come after us and like like force us to like delete our episode because we use uh um yeah you know certain Eagles songs I had to record Don Henley's They're Not Here, They're Not Coming on my microphone, like playing on Spotify because you can't get a version of it on YouTube to even rip. It's like wow. that locked down. Like he he's notorious for that. But I will say, I mean, that's a sec. I don't know. I I grew up like I, I had that kind of music taste in the 2000s, like very into indie stuff. I think in high school, like a lot of 60s kind of rock like bob dylan neil young uh velvet underground like you know the kind of typical like uh i don't know like hipster starter guide to um to like good music or whatever and um and then you know obviously like radiohead who now i kind of yeah. i don't know it's weird I, i've exhausted I, so weird. All they were feeling. my favorite band in high school and i never ever listen to them now i love same, them same like, i, love I them don't know so much like literally like i just yeah. love radiohead so much uh and yet now yeah i can't like 
care about. I don't never I don't ever go back and revisit any of that those albums. I don't know. Yeah. No, no. The yeah, most I did was weird. listen to I listened to a little bit of Kid A because there was some discourse around like the 20th anniversary of it, and some people were there were some like hot take articles through like actually bros like Kid A sucks, and then other people wow. were like no it was good, and people were fighting over it. So now yeah now it's like they they even lost some of the critical luster of like whiny like white British boys just like oh, the apocalypse like I don't know or just like doing bleak blue music. I still think that uh, like Idiotech is a good song. Idiotech is great. No, uh, for sure. Yeah. I think the albums and, uh, are are great. I, I think they are good albums and stuff. Like I I can't really say anything for like oh this music actually is like cringe now or it sucks. It's just like I don't know. It's even relevant, which is weird. Like they were on this tip of like technological paranoia in like the late nineties, yeah. like okay computer, but for some reason it doesn't hit as well as it did yeah. in like two thousand four. Like mm-hmm. it's a, uh, you know, and I was really like, I actually got to see uh, Tom York, like one of the first concerts I went to as a teenager was like the the bridge school benefit uh, that Neil Young throws every year where it's like for his, the school that he founded for kids with special needs and everyone comes and does acoustic sets like I went to the 2002 one which is like the most 2002 lineup ever it was like the Foo Fighters Jack Johnson <laughs> Ryan Adams Tenacious D Ryan Adams, uh, James wow. yeah. t- James Taylor uh, Neil Young and then uh, Tom York by himself playing all of the electronic songs from Kid A and Amnesiac and Hail the Thief on a piano, bro. You know? Well, yeah, I mean, he did. He came out with two, right? Adams Uh, for Peace or whatever. I mean, he also has, like, cringy, like, political takes a lot of the time. So, like, well, can't everybody just be a Buddhist or something like that? And, like, uh, like oh, you <laughs> yeah. love Pussy Riot. Like, they, they kind of, I think maybe that's part of it I is, like, they lost like, the thread yeah, like a little in, bit. Well, in high school, like, their politics seemed, like, kind of arcane and just, like, you know, like, cool and, like, kind of, like, they were against the system, you know? But then, like, what yeah. actually does Radiohead stand for, like... You know, yeah, I mean, it's cool to give away their albums for free, I guess, or did for a while. Uh, you know, I feel that was like the that's... last album that I vibed with in Rainbows and maybe their last album that kind of I feel hit like and the vibe like... with that was a little bit forced. Like there are some OK songs on that, but I feel like we all wanted it to be good. That's my take. Like, I remember when that came out because we actually were friends at that point. We hadn't been yeah. friends for the, the prior We had albums, just become friends. I think we had just become yeah. friends when And I Rainbows, remember, uh, like, you were vibing out. with it, and I, like, tried... I mean, Videotape is good. The last mm-hmm. track is good, I think, you know. Uh, Videotape is great, yeah. There are some good songs on that. All on I that Need album, is, but, like, you know. kind of good. Yeah, uh, yeah, like, but I, I feel like it was... You could see, like, you could see the decline starting to happen. Like, it wasn't as yeah. good as... Even Hail to the Thief, which wasn't super great, like, you know, I feel like... I, I still... I have a, I have a bigger place in my heart for Hail to the Thief because that came out, like, in the middle of high school, like, kind of the perfect time, and that was kind of, like, yeah. my Radiohead album as, like, a, like a 15-year-old that was, like, you know... I remember taking my... I had, like, a really wild um, driving instructor when I was 15, you know, when you, you had to do it to get your permit, and, like, uh, I got him to buy me cigars uh for like uh me and my friends i was like dude can you like 
can we go to smoke shop? And he was like, I don't care, like, if you learn how to drive. Like, we can do whatever you want, man. And I was like, okay, cool. You buy me cigars? And he's like, cool. And then I was like, can we go to Best Buy? And he's like, yeah, whatever. And then uh, we went to Best Buy, and I bought Hail to the Thief. Um, So, Uh. like... You know, and then I played it all that summer, that summer where the Iraq war was starting and I had already seen him do a lot of these songs like on piano. And he did say a little bit like this one is for the peace march today. And he started playing like there, there or something like that. I don't know. Um, Or or sail to the moon. One of those ones. But it did feel like they were like standing up in their own obscure kind of way, their own occulted kind of way to, uh, you know, the this new neocon like Bush Blair kind of um right. you know imperialist consensus that was happening but then they, they did kind of just spiral off into like a k-hole of like making really soft like kind of technically complicated like music on like the king of limbs which just kind of mm-hmm. sounded like it didn't have any sweep anymore and maybe that was just a vic they were just victims of rock like falling by the wayside and not having the power or the capacity uh for like you know, yeah. bigness no, yeah. that it had I mean, by remember, the end of the 20s. I remember joking 2000s. for a while about how they had like five albums come out called like The Noodle Lord that like all sound the same, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly, like, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, it stopped being um, kind of deep and it started to be like a kind of douchey guy in like a creative writing class who was like, yo, like, yeah. look at how like allegorical I'm being. Or yeah, something like, yeah, like exactly. I read it, Nietzsche, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of like the dude like in like uh, our mandatory at least uh yeah like in the mandatory like filmmaking class i had to take uh in undergrad i remember mm-hmm. like uh there was this one kid who had like his own camera and knew like all these tricks when like everyone else was taking the class to be like mandatory and like he would do all this shit and like yet somehow he would like break the rules for the class like you know like we weren't supposed to have dialogue in our movies but he uh-huh. would always have these long monologues and like immaculately shot and lit and everything and like but <laughs> it was still like you know he'd be like oh you need to redo this like because you like didn't do the assignment like and everyone yeah, else would make yeah. this like complete shit you know like uh yeah, it yeah. has that same vibe of, like, look what I can do, you know, like, uh-huh. okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is fine. I mean, I've yeah. enjoyed Johnny Greenwood's scoring and There Will Be Blood and Phantom Thread uh-huh. and uh, I, An Inherent yeah. Vice. I mean, I think those have been kind of cool. I like right. that, honestly, more than I like uh, than I like Tom York's solo stuff, which is just kind of like Yeah, whatever. I never really liked his solo album. I've completely forgotten it. It was, like, Black Swan or something, right? That's interesting. Black Swan. Uh, yeah. Uh, mm, yeah, yeah. No, he, yeah. Uh, there was a 2006. Black one i Swan. think yeah um, yeah it's just a little it's too cold and remote the eraser and, and kind of feel, was his album the eraser that's right yeah, yeah yeah that's right. right um yeah so i mean that was yeah radiohead don't really vibe with them anymore um i i will say yeah. that like yeah in the uh sometime in the mid 2010s in terms of like what i'm still vibing with today um and i think you've heard a few examples of it like in our soviet parapsychology episode um i got like really obsessed with like eastern block pop and rock music it's really every type every genre of like eastern block music probably around 2014 um uh which uh which i believe it stemmed <clears throat> the initial inspiration was uh when we were riding around in a like uh, taxi in irkutsk siberia uh, in 2012, and our uh, taxi driver was playing Grupa Krovi by Kino, uh, the the Victor Soy group from the 80s, like a perestroika era Soviet rock group, and it really slapped. And I recorded some of it like on my phone, and like for a couple of years, I just had this like mysterious like 
recording of like a, a, a really cool like rock song. And like, I didn't realize it was from the Soviet era. Uh, but I remember we asked him like, who is this guy? And he was like, kind of like, he was really proud to like, he has, he's Victor Soy, you know, or something like that. And I kind of wrote down like Victor Choi, like Victor Chon or something like that. I'm like my phone. <laughs> um, but then eventually I like discovered the song and that was like their big hit from like 1988. And, um, uh, then I went into like a huge Victor Soy phase and, uh, which I think I'd still, we could do a whole episode about him at some point. Cause some people in Russia have, uh, he died under mysterious uh, circumstances when he was 28 in 1990. He was kind of like the Kurt Cobain of like the late Soviet union in a lot of ways. Like that's the kind of level of like mythos that he has. Um, there have been all kinds of conspiracy theories, like on the one hand that he was assassinated by the KGB, on the other hand that he was a CIA agent, uh, that whose songs were actually written by the CIA to like destabilize uh, the Soviet culture. Um, and that whole thing is like really fascinating. But then even when I started going back from the 80s um, into the 70s and the 60s, I, I've found like so many like amazing artists uh both in like the mainstream and in the obscure um i think i put chesuav Niemen in the last episode uh his english version prog rock rendition of uh strange is this world which uh was like his big hit from the 70s he's a very kind of like scott walker type guy kind of like big band but then in the 70s he went and it is a polish uh polish singer songwriter uh, in the 70s went in like a very trippy psychedelic prog rock direction and uh i think i tweeted a long time ago when when somebody who was like some lib resistance person who had a, like a polish husband was like my polish husband's family told me that like if you were discovered speaking english like you would be shot immediately in poland yeah, <laughs> or something yeah. like that and then i discovered this like english language Czesław Niemen album uh where he's like singing the whole thing in english and, and it's like it, it's incredibly like wild and experimental and shit and it was totally sanctioned by the government it wasn't like an underground like Sumi's death record or something like that um so it, it would that was like a kind of epistemological breakthrough for me that actually um tore down a lot of presumptions that i had had about sort of the communist world in the 20th century and um yeah i mean definitely like tilted me a little more on the uh uh tanky path a little bit because i realized that the cold war on a cultural level i i did buy into the bullshit that we i think try to deconstruct on this podcast a lot that you know for all the horrible things that like the west and america kind of um you know did throughout the 20th century for all the bad things that you know um you know they were engaged in well we did kind of get like the the upper hand in like arts and culture didn't we like we Mm -hmm. had the more exciting music in the 60s we had these crazy films in the 70s we had this like big big spectacular culture and um you know if you believe the normative kind of um myth of the 60s you know that was just like this organic thing that popped up and even you know it was in opposition to like the status quo, but then America was free enough that we were able to kind of like accommodate it and, uh, and then, you know, reward artists very handsomely for uh, creating their art as opposed to the Soviet union where there was like a, you know, um, a troika of like evil Stalinists who were just like yet every time you wanted to like, you know, okay. paint something impressionist or mm-hmm. like they had so much psychedelic music, but they didn't have, like an LSD like wait they didn't flood their country with LSD but they still had like a really crazy like prog 
uh, psychedelic um, bent, even to the pop, like mainstream bands that were like very, very big and all the bands that run Melodia, which was like the single Monopoly record label. And, uh, you know, I mean, they had disco. I think I tweeted about that recently. You know, they banned uh, Western punk and heavy metal and uh, shit like that for being satanic and promoting Nazism and hyper-individualism. But, like, they were very big fans of, like, disco and all these other really great kind of genres. Uh, so, yeah, I didn't, I mean, I think uh, that was kind of... I took a couple years of kind of, like, getting less and less interested in uh, both contemporary and, like, past American music um, for that reason, uh, except for kind of really marginal things. Like, uh, I was a big John Mouse fan, an Ariel Pink fan, um, and I guess still am. Uh, they're kind of both, like, interesting artists uh that kind of low lo-fi stuff um i've also like dabbled in making music uh though never in a kind of like even quasi-professional capacity like the intro to this uh podcast is something i produced and uh, i think in the first few episodes those are all tracks that i was making during quarantine this year um, just like on like playing around with like a synthesizer on GarageBand. So I've like dabbled in kind of like electronic stuff. I do play the guitar, not particularly well. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm in a weirder place with, uh, with music nowadays where not a lot of it really excites me. I guess like this month, I don't know. There've been a couple albums that seemed like decent this year, uh, just to be, not to make me basic, but, like, there was, like, a pop album that just came out that popped up on Spotify by a Baby Queen. Um, uh, who's that? <laughs> uh, Baby Queen is, like, a Zoomer, like, pop girl uh, who released an album called Medicine, or maybe an EP, okay. uh, on November 11th. And she has, uh, there's a few songs on it, like, Internet Religion, Pretty Girl Lie, Want Me, Buzzkill, Medicine, and Online Dating, which are kind of like, okay, who's the, um, who's that, like, YouTube girl star that does the Billie Eilish voice that we, like, have kind of, oh, like, Olivia made fun of before? Yes, <laughs> Olivia yes, O'Brien. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, it's like, yeah. I don't know, it's like, if Olivia O'Brien... I don't exist. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. It's, it's kind of like if... so pretty. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like if Olivia O'Brien was like a more talented overall and a much cleverer <laughs> songwriter, it would be like mm-hmm. Baby Queen, you know, kind yeah. of. And it's like still kind of like mainstream, but it it has a kind of acerbic like uh, fuck my life kind of like thing with just like the, yeah. the modern world is like depressing. And I think she's British. So uh, I, I did kind of vibe with that album like earlier this month. Um, and uh I've been going back and listening to the Blood Orange album, which was featured like really heavily in uh, the HBO series We Are Who We Are, which I've actually found not to get off the topic of music, but I found was one of the only like interesting and not predictable uh, TV shows to come out this year um, Mm -hmm. in like a very, very bad year. Yeah, but, but Blood Orange is, like, a critical part of the plot, and I mean, he even appears in it in the final episode, but uh, the songs Time Will Tell um, and a couple other ones from that album are something that uh, I vibed with a lot a few years ago and then was listening to this month and, like, pretty good. Um, and then, of course, like, 
the subject that we are going to like tackle in a whole episode is like for some reason, like maybe <clears throat> about like a, a year and a half ago, uh, I just got seized with a sudden like fixation and fascination and appreciation for the Eagles. Yes, definitely. And true. you, you know, yeah, you're aware <laughs> yeah. of this. Like yeah, yeah. I really went in hard on, I grew up listening to the Eagles. Like my dad would play it in the car when we would drive around, like when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, like, I, guess, I like, knew Springsteen was like that for me. Like, you know, exactly. Like, yeah. Same reason. You know, yeah, for sure. For sure. And I, they, I think they are kind of, even though, you know, and this is interesting, we can talk about it. Like, you know, when we do an episode, but I think what, and we've talked about it on the grotto as well. There's, there's a few Eagles heads, uh, in there. And uh-huh. I feel like it is it, in a way, I hate to use this term, but it's almost like the most punk rock thing you can do in this day and age is rep the <laughs> Eagles and like insist that they're, they're, they're like actually good and like deserve to be like held up in the pantheon because they are the number one selling band of all time in America in terms of their records. I mean, uh, greatest hits volume one is the best selling American record in history. And Hotel California is the third best-selling record. I believe Thriller is number two. And um, and it's all over the radio. You know, it's it's so... I think that's why people kind of react badly to it, is because it's so ubiquitous in so many forms of media, and it has an association with, like, I don't know, like, corny boomers, maybe? Mm-hmm. I don't know I what guess. it is. It's like... Yeah, yeah I but even back with, when they were around, I, I got they MRI had haters. one time. When I was, uh, yeah, when I was in high school, I got an MRI, and they, like, I guess can play, like, any kind of music while you're getting the MRI, and they played the Eagles. Wow. Other than that, I never really listened to the Eagles, uh, but that's, like, my <laughs> biggest association with them, uh, and, of course, Interesting. you, uh, and, yeah, well, I never really listened see- to them. I listened to Smuggler's Blues and everything, you know, like, because uh, of your recommendation, and, uh, you know, like, the all Which might whatever, have been you know? my number yeah. one Spotify song from 2019 was Smuggler's Blues. Because yeah. when I discovered it, I was, uh, I, I've discussed before, like, the Mina's Here to Stay connection. And the video is, like, so hilarious and amazing. And uh, even though Glenn Fry made that awful song about, like, It's Better in the USA that I put in uh, mm-hmm. the, the Target Is Your Brain episode, uh, I just, like, I love the all-nighter. I love Don Henley's, like, 80s. Uh, we probably will maybe either in the Eagles or the Grateful Dead episode, like his oblique reference in the boys of summer to, uh, out on the road today. I saw a deadhead, uh, sitting in a Cadillac or yeah, I saw a deadhead sticker on a Cadillac, a little voice inside my head said, don't look back. You can never look back. Um, and, uh, the Eagles, I think what draws me to them now is, well, okay. One, um, when I played them for somebody last year, they described it to me. They, they had this like realization of like, this is like ASMR rock, you know? And I think that was like totally spot on that they are there's something so like soothing and like calm about uh, all the Eagles music. And it's like immaculately well produced. They got a lot of shit for that back in the day. But they were also like an amazing live band. They definitely, you know, they were probably the most accomplished boy band uh, in history. I think they're better than the I think they're better than the Beatles. But like, you know, come fight me. I don't care. Um, Mm. And I think in a way that there's a way to read in a not quite Pynchon-esque way, but there's something like that going on with a lot of the Eagles music, in particular in like Hotel California, which um, is a song that is, you know, burned into my consciousness, but I could still listen to kind of over and over again today because I think in this last uh, run of Eagles Obsession, I realized that, you know, the sort of the occult kind of, 
I don't know, the whole narrative of Hotel California is so full of like kind of um, sinister references and the fact that it is a metaphor for California, it's a metaphor for Hollywood, for the entertainment industry, for like, I don't know, the whole West in general, for, for the idea of, of this like, this luxurious idea of America that is actually a satanic dungeon of like terror where if you check in, you know, you can never leave. And, you know, even the references to, like, Steely Dan, who the Grotto has been talking about as having, like, weird Defense Department connections. Uh, <laughs> he even, like, insults them. And um, and Don, Don Henley, who is, you know, the singer on that song, the probably the most accomplished, the most formidable drummer-singer in rock history, uh, you know, not to put down Phil Collins, but I think Don Henley is obviously uh, superior. But... I think he is a kind of bitter person where he's like talked in interviews about the the trauma of the 60s failing um, is like very central to the entire kind of ethos of like the Eagles project and the, the kind of songs they were writing. And there's a kind of um, preoccupation with trying to find yourself again and like get your feet back on the ground after your like young fiery dreams were like crushed by forces larger than you can comprehend. And that's why you got to take it easy. Um, mm-hmm. People misinterpret that as like, take it easy was telling people to check out of politics and um, stop being political. Like it was a hard break from the sixties protest music, which we will get to uh, in the future was like, uh, uh, has a lot of psyop elements that are like not acknowledged by like mainstream culture, but the so the Eagles get the blame for as if like you know Take It Easy came out and all the boomers decided to like stop protesting because uh, now they could just take it easy um, and have a peaceful easy feeling. And uh, but if they had listened to um, you know maybe some of the other songs on their first album like Take the Devil. Um, where Randy Meisner warns you that the devil is always close. You know, he, he's, he's never far away. He's always close behind. And uh, Witchy Woman, where Don Henley gets uh, psyoped uh, into falling in love with a witch who murders people. And uh, a lot of, you know, most of us are sad. Um, just a pretty, <laughs> you know, really great track. I don't know. You could just go on all day. And, of course, Desperado. Yes. My, I, I have, like, a whole revolutionary hot take about <laughs> Desperado. I, uh, but, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. yeah and um, I, I just think, um, yeah, they are, uh, they, they get a lot of shit sometimes for being, like, basic and not complex. But their songwriting is really, like, kind of virtuosic and uh and also i mean not only were they just kind of in general bummed about the 60s but i had forgotten this but actually joe walsh who's the guitarist uh who joined for the hotel california album and um is you know kind of the fun and crazy one in the group he was actually at the kent state massacre when he was like a college student Mm. and he experienced that directly and then i think dropped out of college and then started playing music uh and then you know eventually found his way to the eagles so all of them kind of have this like this kind of this haunt and it's also in the post Manson era which there's so much to get into with that where they were kind of like they came in the heels of this Laurel Canyon scene I mean they were signed by Geffen 
who uh, kind of put together all of these big acts in the early 70s um, and kind of became like this hotshot uh, working for Lookout Management. Don't know if that's related to Lookout Mountain Air Force Base, but there seems to be like this awareness of somebody in the grotto said a salient comment of they thought that Take It Easy was kind of like an anti-cult anthem. Mm-hmm. Or, or actually maybe, no, I'm sorry, Peaceful Easy Feeling is an anti-cult anthem. Because it's kind of saying, like, you know, um, I know you won't let me down because I'm already standing on the ground. It's like cautioning you, you know, and I, Glenn Fry sings, I found out a long time ago what a woman can do to your soul, but she can't teach you anything. She can't take you anywhere. You don't already know uh, how to go. So it, 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 it seems that there's these kind of weird illusions. And then the music itself is so calming. Um, I just think like the Eagles are, they need to be reevaluated. And, uh, and also, I mean, just to tie the knot here, I think that uh, a lot of the kind of big mainstream pop rock in the seventies in the Soviet union and in the communist countries it, it, a lot of it sounds a lot like the Eagles, which I find fascinating and I want to get to the bottom of because it's almost like by denigrating the Eagles and being like, no, man, like the Ramones are where it's at or some bullshit like that, that you are uh, by proxy. Like if anybody listened to like Pesniari or one of these like big band like pop groups in the 70s, uh, maybe a sort of punk pilled American person would be like, <laughs> Dude, that stuff's so corny. It's just like the Eagles. When in fact, uh, that should be the compliment of the highest order. <laughs> and yes. a testament okay. to the progress of the artists on the Melodia label uh, mm-hmm. instead of, uh, in fact, just as a final thing, uh, another band that was like very early on, very big for me that I'm kind of, I don't know, I'm sort of out of sync with them, but if they've come back periodically is Nirvana. And uh, an interesting little tidbit about, well, there's a couple of things about Nirvana, but one thing that I found on YouTube a little while back was that they were performing at a concert in West Berlin the night that the Berlin Wall fell. And, like, they were interviewed about it. And we're just like, yeah, man, like, it was crazy. And I, immediately my, like, sus radar goes off. Like, why are they, like, in fucking West Berlin to, like, you know, welcome the East Germans with, like, a psyop of grunge? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but also my even five... But, but so what Chris Novoselic said in that interview, uh, he kind of said, like, it was cool that, like, Eastern, uh, you know, German people were coming over and that, like... They were kind of aware. I think maybe they had even like visited East Berlin. But what Chris Novoselic said is like, you know, it just really sucks, man, because all the people in East Berlin, like their music is just like so corny, man. Like they're still listening to like John Bon Jovi and like kind of stuff that sounds like that. And so like I think like the wall coming down, you know, uh, they like they'll they'll have to do some catching up to like listen to like some real good shit, which I guess he meant kind of like punk and grunge. But here's here's the, the sus thing about that is that Chris Novoselic is Croatian and he actually spent eighth grade living in socialist Yugoslavia. He went there for a year to live with relatives and he was exposed as an eighth grader to the absolutely flourishing and like totally, it might have, a, have to be its own episode, like Yugoslav dark wave, was like an amazing kind of movement of like kind of post-punk music in the early 80s. And you could still find a lot of it on YouTube. But I guess he became influenced by like bands like Azra and uh, the other ones are escaping me right now. But there were a lot of bands that almost sound like you play like a 
1980 album and it sounds like 90s alternative rock in America. And you're like, whoa, mm-hmm. like, what the fuck? Like, these guys were way ahead in terms of, like, the sounds they were developing. And Chris Novoselic must have been like he what he bought a bunch of like records and tapes and stuff and brought them back to America and then um there's even kind of a legend of like Kurt Cobain was like high school friends with Chris's little brother and one day he heard this like like dark wave like post-punk music like blaring upstairs and was like whoa what's that and he's like oh my older brother Chris is like listening to like you know punk rock and so he went up there and then he got like you know punk pilled by like Chris Novoselic, and then they became friends and started Nirvana. And I have no proof of this, but then I would like to think that, like, Nirvana heard some early Yugoslav dark wave records because they sound so grungy, but, like, we're way before anybody was doing grunge in America. And whether they realize it or not, we're actually influenced by music from, like, a culturally dead communist country to make their, like, iconic sort of form of, like, grunge power pop. And thus, uh, you know, it's yet another example of America stealing uh, the intellectual and artistic labor of, like, socialist musicians to create a psyop back home to uh, get everybody to, like, I don't know, do heroin and wear flannel. Um but anyways, that's <laughs> quite, uh, that, that was quite a tangent. But uh, I guess just the uh, yeah, that's uh, that's some of my thoughts on music. Um, OK, we uh, have been talking for 50 uh, minutes, so I guess we should move well, on. Well, but hold on. I do have some okay. uh, little tidbits. Uh, first off, I discovered a funny uh, Radiohead uh, anecdote here uh, in 2017. Um, I guess there was going to be a Radiohead concert in Israel. And uh, Roger Waters, Thurston Moore, Desmond Tutu, and Ken Loach signed a petition urging Radiohead to cancel the, the concert. Um, oh. And uh, in a Rolling Stone interview, Tom York said, I can't understand why going to play a rock show or going to lecture at a university is a problem. It's just really upsetting that artists respect... Uh, I respect think we are not capable of making a moral decision ourselves after all these years. They talk down to us, and I just find it mind-boggling. They think that they have the right to do that. Uh, your claim the petitioners have not contacted him, as from Wikipedia, this was rebuked by Waters, who said in an open letter in Rolling Stone that he had attempted several times to contact York. In a statement, York responded, Playing in a country isn't the same as endorsing the government. Music, art, and academia is about crossing borders and not building them about open minds, not closed ones, about shared humanity, dialogue, and freedom of expression. I can't believe, like, you would, would Desmond Tutu writes you a, a letter saying don't do this. <laughs> like, are you fucking, like, and you're, like, a Dude, liberal. Uh, yeah, 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 such a uh, This is another uh, great thing from uh, Chris uh, Novoselic that he uh, wrote uh, in the aftermath of George Floyd. Uh, he said, uh, he wrote on his Facebook, Wow! I know many of you can't stand him. However, Trump knocked it out of the park with this speech. I drove from Oaxacum to Seattle, uh, or Oaxacum, yeah, uh, Oaxacum, and to Seattle and back today and have seen countless fellow Washingtonians on the road. I did not see any violence, but a Tesla supercharging station at an urban mall was closed off by police. Driving, I passed by regular folks who were already stressed by the COVID situation. Now social media and television are looping images of societal breakdown. I agree, the president should not be sending troops in the state, and illegally might not be able to anyway. Nevertheless, his tone in his speech is strong and direct. I have been watching the images in the media and thinking about how polarized our country is. I mean, even wearing medical masks in public can be seen as a political statement. The violence, not the protests, appear as leftist insurrection. Imagine if so-called patriot militias were raising this kind of hell. 
If this were the case, left-wing people would welcome federal intervention. Most Americans want peace in their communities, and President Trump spoke to this desire. Never mind the legal details that few understand. Trump said he would stop the violence, and this speaks to many. Uh, interesting. Wait, who said that? Uh, uh, Chris Novoselic. Oh, uh, yeah. He also wrote a kind of cringy, like, uh, you know, we need to intervene to save, like, Croatia uh, article in the early 90s. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah like, well, when he was still in Nirvana. He's a big fan of Law and Order, uh, and, you know, he thinks it's important uh, to stop the, I mean, the leftist insurrection. The, the horrible, dangerous leftist insurrection that we're now seeing the consequences of, where Chris Matthews is being guillotined in uh, Central Park, etc. Uh, oh, terrible. The police yeah. have been abolished, uh, just as everyone feared. Uh, it's anarchy everywhere. There's no police. Uh, and, I mean, now we even have President Joe Biden, who is obviously going to just overturn all of our values. Uh, and yeah, our, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess so. Wow. Okay. All, yeah. This there's stuff some... always is extremely effective. Yeah. Well, we. I think, um, yeah, one day we will. I, th- I think even the. Okay, the, like the the death of Kurt Cobain is something that uh, does fascinate stuff, yeah, me a lot, true. and that's enough. That's yeah. something we could tackle at a later date. And all the the weirdness around Nirvana. Um, it'll also be good to do after our Laurel Canyon episode because Geffen was also the person who uh, launched Nirvana like into the stratosphere as uh, yeah. as like the band of the early '90s. But um, okay, I think we should. Uh, we should start yeah. to oh, move on. Um, yeah, I don't, let me the, shout the, out the, one album that I think you guys might like, uh, which is uh, Songs from New Mexico by the Traveling Light Singers. That's like one, you know, kind of Western-y, like, uh, Islamic music album. You know, I think it might be a little bit accessible, and I bought that really hard, maybe around the same time you were uh, listening to Smuggler's Blues. But uh, anyway, uh-huh. yeah, maybe that'll make an <laughs> appearance on the pod at some point. But anyway, yeah, we can move on. Okay. To oh, yeah, uh, and just yeah. as a final thing, they did ask, like, what was the ha hing mumbling tune played around the first half hour of the second 9 a app? And I found yes. it. It's actually it's the chant of the Order of the Nine Angles, Lux Luna, by an account named Nameless Therein in the Scothorn Nexion. So if you <laughs> look up, like, Nameless Therein, this dude does a lot of chants of that nature. I used a few of his chants in the 9 a episode. Uh, was that the guy who... Uh, uh, committed the um like murder because i remember he or like uh did we find that from his channel uh mm, i don't know if that i don't know if he was, was yeah i don't think yeah, so but th- that was the one where he's like, like had some 09a songs on it uh that we found because they were like I, I don't know if the guy had made them but they were on the channel of the guy who had committed the but yeah i don't know this guy might be someone else I the think he's just out there. Right. He, he's posted. Right. This is posted on July 2020. So this guy is like yeah. currently active. Um, yeah, he's all and, about uh, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, Into the <laughs> Night by David Myatt. Cool. Yeah, that's where I got a lot of. Uh, there's a lot of the songs on YouTube. And uh, like I said, some of the music, it is interesting. But I also don't want to listen to all of it because I feel like it's satanically like brainwashing me a little bit. Uh, like it's too yeah, it's too good and kind of um yeah anyways uh i think yeah, we'll um return to oh, maybe this topic because there is a satan music question later on uh but okay. anyway uh, yeah yeah but we'll this uh, bonus yeah. I, I don't know uh we'll, we'll just go to two right now um oh, i think we well, might oh, i, I we don't know this question let's do the bonus question okay well, real we'll just quick. quickly do it uh the bigfoot program no uh <laughs> like um, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess, like, you know, definitely the UFO stuff has never stopped. Uh, I guess it's kind of a freebie, though, because, like, we know that to be true. Maybe I'll just do yeah. the Bigfoot program. Uh, okay. Yeah, I, I would uh, say, what? like, 
like CIA drug trafficking operations have not stopped. Yeah, uh, CIA military drug trafficking operations. Yeah, um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I mean, I almost you know, don't think just, that anything actually stopped. Uh, you know, like once no, it started, not if it I don't works. think that it would stop. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, uh, even the psychic sure. shit. I have no idea. Maybe. Yeah. yeah uh, you know what? I wouldn't be surprised if it do- it it hasn't stopped. Uh, mm-hmm. Because yeah. yeah, I don't think that. I mean, I okay. think that there might have been certain dead ends that they haven't pursued. I think that's kind of difficult, like the remote viewing stuff, and like not very reliable. And I think that yeah, uh, they might okay. not. But maybe they are. You never know. Uh, anyway, yeah. Okay, we'll move on. Yeah. We'll move okay. So we'll, we'll keep uh, yes. In passing, you referred to him as a psyop, and I believe that he and the subgenius people probably are, but I'm mostly in the dark about their history and impact, except that sus people uh, were or are into them today. My question is mainly what they're about, what are their ties, if there's anything of value value to them, etc. Okay, so uh, okay, you're I know the one we who have really to... has the biggest axe to grind on Robert Anton Wilson. Um, yeah, I know, uh, hate the Discordians. Um, I mean, they're definitely, like, lame. Like, they repulse me in the same way as like, the Satanic Temple people do. I hate all parody religions, and I find that just to be intellectually barren. Uh, and, like, you know, uh, I, I just find it to be, like, a like very stupid, annoying, uh, you know, uh, just... Uh, like uh, mentally stunted or closed off uh, way to interact with the idea of religion. Uh, this mm-hmm. is an interesting Robert Anton Wilson quote. Is, is, is. The idiocy of the word haunts me. If it were abolished, human thought might begin to make sense. I don't know what anything is. I only know how it seems to me at this moment. So this is interesting because uh, I guess this is from the historical Illuminatus Chronicles. Uh, this mm-hmm. is interesting to me because... Like, he's right that uh, there's a lot, like, is is something that's unexamined, but I really think that, you know, 
Heidegger, you know, who also was a Nazi, uh, and actually, like, you know, an enthusiastic Nazi, so I shouldn't necessarily be championing him as uh, someone who's uh, better than Robert Anton Wilson in any real way, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I do think that his idea that uh, the idea of being is under erasure and unexamined, uh, and something that, you know, we should turn our attention to and try to understand, rather than, uh, like, declaring that we need to get rid of the word is, uh, or whatever. I mean, a lot of languages don't have the the word is per se, so uh, I guess then you would just learn in a language aside English. But there's always the concept of of being or to yeah. be. They're very that's various. Fun. But again, yeah. well, that's the that is that is God. That's when you get to God. That's when you get to ontology, which is a topic that people are afraid of because they want to do what he did, which is like have a generalized agnosticism. Uh, in his words, and just say, like, well, maybe you can't know, you can't know, which I think is just a very cowardly position because, like, it's refusal to engage with this thing that really is implied in a lot, like, almost any kind of thought, which is the question of, like, being. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, and that's something, I think this maybe will come up in our next episode, uh, you know, that we do for uh, Alwara, which will be about uh, the Ouija board. But, mm -hmm. you know, this uh, I feel like this whole this idea of the ontology talked about a lot. And the, uh, you know, the idea that like sort of parroting religion or uh, rituals that are sort of meant to uh, have like no effect or to raise the question of, of what, you know, or, or not even to raise the question to kind of... Uh, Baroque or, or parody the question of what is or, or and what and what is not like or is to sort of buck that question. I think that uh, you know that is uh, just like a bad path. I think that it's interesting to engage with this question because that's where like a lot of you know uh, interesting ideological conflict uh, is happening. And if we mm -hmm. have to like you know uh, just pass the you know just kick the can down the road on this. It's going to be bad. You know, it's, it's like for going back to our very, very first episode, like the Baphomet thing, you know, like yeah. if you really believe that Baphomet is real, like, you know, that, like, like uh, people should like, oh, we can disagree, disagree, we can agree to disagree or whatever. But I think that it is kind of important to talk about these things uh, and, you know, uh, to really discuss this. Uh, and that I don't think that this question of is uh, or of being is something that we really should uh, get away from. Uh, I think it's something that we should, like, dive into, um, mm -hmm. you know, the question of, like, what's real and the uh, sort of yeah. conflict that can happen with people's experiences and other people's ideas, uh, their their ontologies. Um, for sure, their, for know, sure. ideas of reality, et cetera. Anyway, yeah, so you probably but, but, have an idea of yeah, how it's a particular. Yeah, to get to Robert Anton Wilson himself, just his back, I know he, he's been connected to a lot of things, which, like, I would have to go brush up on my research to, like, fully detail, and we will save it for... Um, kind of uh yeah a full a full dive at some point because he inner he interlocks with so many different people that we've already like mentioned in passing so you know yeah. he, he was also he, a Gurdjieff jeff guy uh, sort of a little bit you know uh terrence mckenna yeah, yeah. uh friends of terrence mckenna jack parsons yeah. um and uh basically i guess you know, after graduating uh, college, he didn't. He came from what he describes as a lace curtain Irish at at, uh, at last. Uh, oh, I guess he he was a firm family. It was kind of working class Irish that moved up to lace curtain Irish. Um, yeah. 
and uh, got really interested in like bebop, psychoanalysis, Bertrand Russell, Carl Jung, Wilhelm Reich, Leon Trotsky, and Ayn Rand, who he later repudiated. Um, he studied cool. electrical engineering and mathematics at Brooklyn Polytechnic Institute and English education at NYU from 1957 and 58, but failed to take a degree from either institution. After smoking marijuana for nearly a decade, he first experimented <laughs> with mescaline in Yellow Springs, Ohio on December 28, 1961. Uh, and, uh, so he started to work as an advertising, uh, copywriter and now here, and then he started working for Playboy, which I think Playboy is a whole kind of nest of like, what, what the fuck is going on at Playboy? Um, I feel like there's a whole kind of like, mm, uh, like Playboy sex kitten kind of weird thing going on. Uh, CIA agent. friend of Allen Ginberg, I guess. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. What I was going to get to here, once he was, uh, once he was working and got a BA, MA, and PhD in psychology from Paideia University, an unaccredited institution Good. that has okay. since closed. I, I couldn't find any, uh, thing about that. I guess his dissertation was reworked and published in 1983 as uh, Prometheus Rising. And uh, he eventually, uh, he fleshed out a lot of articles uh, that he had written at Playboy. um, And in the 70s published his most kind of famous work, which is the Illuminatus Trilogy, um, which mixed like uh, occult and magical symbolism in history, the counterculture of the 60s, secret societies, data concerning author H.P. Lovecraft and Aleister Crowley and American paranoia about conspiracies and conspiracy theories. And the book was intended to poke fun at the conspiratorial frame of mind. Um, and so that kind of became like really his, uh, his stance, like his line that he would promote kind of throughout his life. But he, he was also known for being like endlessly, like slippery and ironic. I mean, he was the ultimate like LOL on CAA kind of person. Like, he kind of developed this sort of, like, um, rhetorical, you know, posture that would allow you to be a kind of, like, ooh, I'm just, like, because he was also associated later on with something called the Discordian Society, which was founded in 1963, um, uh, founded by Greg Hill and a guy who's very interesting, Carrie Wendell Thornley, who... um, Uh, just want to point if there's one kind of interesting thing about him it is that he served in the marines in the early 1960s um with uh with a young another young ambitious marine named uh, lee harvey oswald yeah, they, they, they served for the same time in the same radar operator unit as Lee Harvey Oswald at MCAS El Toro in Santa Ana, California. There we go, Pynchon, Orange County vibes. Both men had shared a common interest in society, culture, literature, and politics, and whenever duty placed them together, had discussed such topics as George Orwell's famous novel, 1984, and the philosophy of Marxism, particularly Oswald's interest in the latter. So here he goes, kind of like uh, in you know, uh, setting up this narrative of like Lee Harvey Oswald was a sincere Marxist. Um, and here's what's even weirder about that. In 19, in February 1962, Thornley completed The Idle Warriors, which has the historical distinction of being the only book written about Lee Harvey Oswald before Kennedy's assassination in 1963. Due to the serendipitous nature of Thornley's choice of literary subject matter, he was called to testify before the Warren Commission in Washington in May 1964. Uh, the commission subpoenaed a copy of the manuscript and stored it in the National uh, Archives. Um, 
And uh, in, in, here's funny. In 1965, Thornley published another book titled Oswald, generally defending the Oswald as lone assassin conclusion of the Warren Commission. Okay, so right away, like, you have Carrie Thornley uh, kind of intersecting with Robert Anton Wilson, and this is a guy who served in the same unit and was, like, friends with Lee Harvey Oswald and then wrote a novel about him before he supposedly killed Kennedy and then afterwards wrote a book basically endorsing the Warren Commission. Like, um, okay, are you just being, like, a little... Are you just doing what Wilson calls guerrilla ontology um, or what he refers to as... Op- well, I think he is doing something that Wilson called Operation Mindfuck, in the Illuminatus book, um, which outlined a set of libertarian and anarchist axioms known as Celine's laws. Um, and I think, yeah. So like basically, um, uh, these guys are just incredibly fucking sus. Like, I don't know any other way to cut it is that they're doing this like, like kind of, um, postmodern game of like, researching conspiracies and almost telling you up front that like you can't trust us like we are not reliable narrators which then probably makes some people like scratch their chins and go "Ooh, how smart you know and well, it's all I, so about I th- you know what who cares like whether it is or isn't you know like uh you're right you you're right seem, like, that's the gorilla ontology you know every you have to just change it up you know uh what he also he actually advocated e prime which is like that goofy thing where uh, you know, it's a, uh, it's basically English, but without any form of the verb to be. So just Ugh. instead of being like, oh, I'm 30, you know, you say like, oh, I, I have 30 years or something. Or like, I have been alive for, th- oh no, I can't even say I've been alive. Whoops. Uh, yeah, like yeah. You will, uh, a French person would like, say uh, like, 30 years j'ai, have passed since trompe, my birth. Uh, whatever. Yeah, exactly. Like, and that's like more sophisticated and less, uh, you know, or whatever. Like, uh, it's a more precise way of speaking to say 30 years have passed since my birth than to say I'm 30 or something like that, you know? Like, uh, it's, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. I guess he thought that was super cool. Um, yeah, I don't yeah, know. I don't yeah. know if he's, I don't know how sus he is. I'm sure he is. He seems extremely sus. I'm sure there's so much you could dig up on him. I haven't, like, read the Illuminata stuff, uh, so I don't really know myself, but I can definitely tell that he's lame, just from a cursory look. Yes, uh, and, he, and sure. he's plugged in, like, uh, literally with, like, all of the sussest, like, 1960s kind of psyop people, like Timothy Leary. Yeah. He was, you know, instrumental in promoting him. Alan and Ginsberg. Uh, I feel yeah, like Pydia University uh, doesn't sound a little bit sus to me. I mean, that, like, you know... It uh, sounds like something sounds out of, like, like something a Panos Cosmatos movie. <laughs> or, it's, or it sounds like something that Alan Ginsberg would have established to like promote like true greco-roman oh pedo- yeah like elpida you know? elpida university something like well, that yeah i mean it literally means like you know uh child uh hood like uh paideia you know, uh y- well it yeah it's uh you know i think it's like the rearing uh or like the education but it has a connotation of uh you know i think uh like like youth or young boys like uh i think uh-huh. i could i could be wrong again my greek is like very atrophied but um i yeah I like it, it sounds like something mk there. new age adjacent and he got his yeah. ba ma and phd from this non-credited like institution and uh it's just 
yeah, he's, <laughs> I get, I get the appeal of wanting to be kind of into Robert. Cause if you're into any of these topics, it seems like, Oh, this cool guy ha- who wrote for playboy has like written this book that kind of tackles almost like it's like if subliminal jihad were incredibly insincere, uh, it would be like Illuminatus because like we are talking about interdimensional ETs and Bigfoot and like secret societies and witchcraft and all these things, but we're not like deliberately trying to like mystify it and confuse and like misdirect people for, I don't know what, for any kind of reason, uh, the way that Robert Anton Wilson was quite proud of, you know, bragging. Um, and, you know, I mean, it, it should also, uh, it's worth noting that uh, Wilson was a big fan of Timothy Leary's Eight Circuit Model of Consciousness and Neurosomatic Linguistic Engineering, uh, which he wrote about in Prometheus Rising and Quantum Psychology, uh, which contained practical techniques intended to help the reader break free of one's reality tunnels. Uh, with Leary, he helped promote the futurist ideas of space migration, intelligence increase, and life extension, which they combined to form the word symbol uh, "smile" uh, with a with oh, an I squared. God. See, like, could this get any worse? I mean, like, come on, like, you know, uh, this is creepy. This um, is creepy, and uh, uh, yeah, super super sus. Um, so I think we will like dig into him uh later and uh he's somebody yeah i don't know um uh, yeah i mean at least i guess he criticized uh material uh, materialism even though he kind of seems like an uh, like a and i fucking love science type guy uh but uh he does yes he said he but i guess he's uh yeah, I guess he's more of a Aleutian Greaves uh, type person. Yeah, uh, or almost like, was... yeah, and also a little bit of a Noam Chomsky, because I see here um, that, you know, he critiques capitalism. He self-describes as a libertarian socialist, just like Chomsky. Cool. And sa- yeah. But he says, I quote, I ask only one thing of skeptics. Don't bring up Soviet Russia, please. That horrible example of state capitalism, oop, trot alert, has nothing to do with what I and other libertarian socialists would offer as an alternative to the present system. By the 1980s, he was less enthusiastic about the socialist label, writing in Prometheus Rising that he, quote, does not like the spread of socialism. So, you know, I think that, you know, once he saw the bravery of those Mujahideen and Contra fighters, he realized uh, the errors of his ways. And uh, I guess uh, Um, even Trotsky, even edgy Trotskyism was too much for him. Uh, cool. A self-described okay. agnostic mystic. All right, whatever. We'll we'll do a whole episode. Yeah, we'll, on we'll this do the whole thing. But uh, we'll rest assured, he's fun, sus. We'll he yeah, is he's sus. He's definitely sus. Uh, yeah. Uh, is there anything okay. of value to them? Maybe, but uh, yeah, I, I well, like you know. Uh, seems discovering like, uh, what they're like, up to uh, has value. Probably anything you could get to. Probably anything you could get from Robert Anton Wilson, you could get like better somewhere else. I mean, why not just read like a real sincere occultist? You know, like you might as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like you probably learn more. Like it probably be more valuable, and not just like I feel like he's kind of like the Terry Pratchett uh, of like the, you know like that's because I get the same vibe from this. You know, it's like all like goofy and winking. Like you know, why not just read? Why not just read Blavatsky at that point? Why not just actually read Crowley? Honestly, like why? You yeah. Know, well, uh, people want really people want interested. like a an alternative media interloper to like to kind of hold yeah, their hand exactly, and walk them through kind of, it. Like, Exactly, and to say, like, you know, this, you know, don't worry, like, about any, it's all just, like, fun and novels, and, like, you know, isn't it, like, you know, and there's no, again, like, the whole issue of the ontology of it, you know, is, like, uh, you know, like, what if 
Bigfoot, you know, who can say? But, like, you know, they don't actually engage with the ontological problems that, like, attends, like, a lot of these topics, uh, mm-hmm. which I think, you know, uh, you know, is important. But, yeah, okay. We, uh, okay, we'll yeah. Um, uh, yeah, we will. Yeah. So um, stay tuned for that. Um, you know, like, flying spaghetti monster, like, you know. Uh, is uh, cringe. Touched by his noodly appendage, uh, incident. I, I see. Radio, I, I do see. Album, uh, uh, yeah, time. right. Uh, yeah, yeah, the uh, spaghetti limbs. Uh, I do. I, yeah. I, I do occasionally see those, like you know, those kind of Jesus fish uh, things that uh, you know people oh, put in the back yeah. of their car. But it's like a, uh, it's like a blob with like spaghetti appendages. So it's cool. Like, yeah. So, so epic. Cool. Wow. So epic. Yeah, Owned. Dope. Yeah. Owned. Notice on Twitter sometimes there's always like some person who's like we need to make atheism cool again like you know like it's a real shame that people don't you know pay it uh, people on the left like you know uh, can't understand that like the importance of atheism and uh, I feel like they always get ratioed or owned in some way but maybe I'm wrong I don't know I f- always find that so annoying like they, they've you're just fallen forgetting. hard you'll since be, they're you'll always be spaghetti monster people yeah, yeah. exactly yeah yeah it's they've fun, fallen like, hard uh, since their 2000s heyday when they really had a heyday they and, really and, had a heyday yeah yeah um, and then uh, everyone realized like Richard Dawkins is a complete idiot uh, <laughs> and Sam Harris is like a Nazi uh, yeah um, yeah yeah cool. anyway um, so Okay, word. so um, you know we're okay. We're at like one seventeen right now. Um, All right, well, that's not so bad. Like, that's not so bad. Yeah, All right, it's not yeah, so we'll bad. And this is dedicated to uh, anybody who went to the peace march. Or okay. Ho Mama, if we're going uh-huh. by uh, the Buffalo yeah. Club. Yeah. Right, okay. Um, so, yeah, uh, he asks, or she, I guess, my mom asks, uh, what about an episode uh, slash tangent about occultism and fascism in manga slash anime slash comics and superhero movies? Uh, I probably said manga wrong. I think it's manga. But anyway, as a longtime mm. fan of both, uh, and seriously slow on the uptake, I can remember my dad reading my copy of Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns in, 19- in 90, handing it back to me and going, that's pretty fascist. I was dumbstruck then, uh, not having any real concept of fascism. 
and over the years it's been a lot easier to notice the occult influences on art than the authoritarian stuff, especially since I, like most boys, was transfixed at an early age by images of stylized violence. But once you notice, oh man, then there's this whole gay fascist warrior culture that ties in in a huge way from Sparta to the samurai to, well, Top Gun. Uh, but the anime stuff could easily be its own episode. Think about it. Uh, yeah, mm. we were just saying before we uh, restarted from taking a break that, like, neither of us has really been, like, big into to anime. Like, I uh, did, like, you know, I have watched, like, Ghost in the Shell. I think that's an interesting movie. Like, the, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I think I even watched Ghost in the Shell, too. Uh, mm -hmm. I watched Akira, obviously. You know, that's a like, very yeah, uh, ESP stuff, you know? Like, mm -hmm. uh they, uh, yeah, basically, Akira, like, the whole, like, psychic nuke weapon, I feel like that's something that the CIA actually, like, believed in, uh, <laughs> you know, or the, that they were actually afraid of the Soviets unleashing, uh, and maybe mm -hmm. that they, they actually had tried to, to perfect on both sides, but, um, yeah, I mean, in terms of the superhero stuff, I, uh, you know, think that that's really salient right now, uh, and I feel mm -hmm. like we have talked about this a lot uh you know we've seen the superhero stuff go from being something that was uh you know considered to be like nerdy or something that people who were social pariahs were into to be something yeah. that like you know is not to mention like, children yeah yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah, it's children. for kids yeah. yeah exactly well you were you were somehow uh maladjusted if you were into superheroes as an adult um you know like if you mm -hmm. like the comic book guy from simpsons you know, if you were uh, into, like, Batman and Superman, if you were, like, Kevin Smith, then you were maladjusted in some way, you know. Uh, but <laughs> Which, now, I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah like, I mean, yeah, I would... Looking at his I mean, oeuvre, I think that, uh, Yeah, uh, well, no, I don't think that that's necessarily untrue because, uh, and I think probably, like, you know, Alan Moore, who is probably the most, like, sophisticated comic book person like you know mm -hmm. there are people who will get held up as being like on his level but really they're not like you know grant morrison and uh neil gaiman like aren't even close in terms of their sophistication and i feel like alan moore is no. someone who acknowledges that aspect of comic books that they are like sort of uh simple stories uh and they have like you know there's a certain uh morality kind of uh that's uh a standard to them i mean that's not to say like you know there's differences, you know, he mentioned anime and manga, and I think that's very different. Like, there's a, there's a very big cultural difference between, like, the role of these things in Japanese culture versus their role in American culture. Like, you know, mm -hmm. uh, manga can be, like, about anything. You know, there's whole different genres, like, blah, blah, blah. You know, like, uh, comic books in America, for whatever reason, are focused on, like, this, you know, pretty formulaic, like, superhero storyline. Of course, there are exceptions, you know, like, there's, like, Mouse by Art Spiegelman or whatever, you know. Sure. There's, like, Robert Crumb or whatever, Felix the Cat, you know. But there's, uh, you know, and I do think that even the superhero stuff, there has been a shift because I do remember when this was in some way, like, subcultural. And I think that the, um, like, you know, you could talk, point to Alan Moore as an example of this, that, you know, someone who's mostly retired from doing this stuff, although I guess maybe he does do some stuff, like, about, like, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen or whatever, which, I don't know, mm -hmm. but, like, uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah. like, uh, you know, like, what, uh, but I think that the more interesting work was happening before it became mainstream, and now they're, like, these sort of, you know, storyboards for these big movies or, like, these, like, dumb things where they're kind of, like, vanity jobs for certain people. I, you know, yeah, so, but I feel like when they were actually more subcultural or, or more sort of uh, obscure, considered to be nerdy, there was more interesting work happening in them artistically. Not to say that it was great, but, uh, 
you know, that uh, they were of greater artistic value before they became, like, you know, the source material for these massive cultural uh, touchstones for everybody. Uh, yeah, you know, but, yeah. I mean, now they've kinda, gone yeah. so mainstream that it is it is the dominant culture now. They want us all to be kind of man-child fanboys in a way. Yeah, like well and, into your thirties and forties, and then brainwash your children into having the same brand allegiances to the same characters, so that mm-hmm. you know they they will grow up uh, worshiping Soup and Batty and Spidey <laughs> Batty. and all of that. <laughs> And Elsa uh, um, and uh, uh, yeah, of course Elsa, that classic uh, superhero character Elsa. Yeah, uh, well maybe right, one day we will. Elsa- I, I yeah, it makes me think of Elsa Gate, but like we'll we'll that, that's a, that's a particularly sinister like and bizarre manifestation. Like a superhero, like I feel like yeah, we could do. I mean, I remember I did read this one book called like Millennial Monsters, which was not about like millennials being monstrous, but it was about like a. Uh, sort of monster uh like the monsters in japanese pop culture like pokemon uh mm-hmm. you know power rangers like the idea of morphing and evolving and like mm. the uh you know the salience of this in sort of japanese culture and the ideas around it and how uh this is like a, a feature of commercialism of course you know like all the like gotta catch them all and everything like that like uh oh yeah and pokemon it's interesting you know, pokemon go is used as a cover to do crowdsource surveillance on mosques <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, feel, hypothetically yeah, exactly, maybe uh, yeah, yeah, like. But um, I remember the addiction around Pokemon Go, even by like young adults. Like, I remember the summer mm-hmm. when everybody was like running around with their phones in front of them, and it was very bizarre. Yeah, but yeah, that that definitely did catch the American imagination as well in a big way. That was another crossover. Um, but yeah, and of course, uh, you know, Power Rangers, which is kind of like cannibalized from Japanese, uh, mm-hmm. like uh, what are what they call them, like Super Sentai or uh, shows. I think so. I, I think so. Yeah, and like, and uh, you know that was brought over here by extremely kind of sus uh, billionaire impresario Haim Saban, the Israeli right, billionaire, yes, of course. Yeah, who was yeah. a huge uh, popped up a lot in the Podesta emails and was a huge uh, backer of the Clinton Foundation and was like very in tight with those networks and. Uh, you know, has his name all over all kinds of buildings and like the Children's Hospital in Los Angeles and, uh, you know, University Wings. He's one of these billionaires that really throws his money around a lot. And it's like mostly from like his Power Rangers fortune and like toys, I guess. <laughs> but like yeah. a lot of it really is just like bringing over these Japanese products and like kind of crappily turning them into American products and then, uh, you know, uh, cleaning up. Um, I was a big Power Rangers head when I was a little kid. I got caught in that zeitgeist for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know. I liked yeah. the Beetleborgs, which were kind of a knockoff. Uh, mm, I remember the Beetleborgs. They were, they were, they were, little, they were shorter lived because yeah. they ran out of the footage. That they ran out of the oh, Japanese yeah. footage yeah. Uh, um, that they were using I, I, for the show. But that, that yeah, had kind I also of a, VR, uh, a spooky I, I, theme. Do you remember uh, VR Troopers? Yeah, my brother was into that. Um, yeah, yeah. That, it was a, more of a brief run, but I remember it being almost a little more... Uh, I'm curious with the VR and VR Troopers. I don't remember much about Virtual actual... reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, because um, I remember the bad guy in VR Troopers was like a billionaire or something who would like, uh, you know, like put his hand on a crystal and then he would go to virtual reality. Um, like So, uh, oh yeah, God. you know, maybe that Terrifying. was they were signaling something to us. But yeah, there's yeah. this book. I looked up the, the author. It's Anne Allison, uh, Millennial Monsters, Japanese Toys, and the Global Imagination. And it goes into some of the stuff, you know, like the, the morphing and how this is between consumerism and, and the relationship of this to childhood and, uh, 
you know, the, like, the alienation children experience and, you know, the way that they participate in these worlds through mm. uh, becoming sort of capitalized or consumer subjects. It's, it's an interesting book. Uh, that's, yeah. like, you know, kind of the most, the they most become toys uh, erudite thing they... I've personally read, yeah, having to do huh. with, yeah. And we've talked about these things with Man Machine, you know, uh, that type of stuff. So, but, yeah, yeah I definitely yeah. think that there's a toyetic aspect uh, to... Uh, you know the newer superhero stuff uh like uh, i remember batman returns of course like uh, all these things are just like selling toys you know star wars another thing that's kind of been assimilated to the same brand we wanted to do an episode about star wars being sus at some point i'm sure we will discuss it we will we will uh yeah in terms of the homoerotic uh warrior culture again i feel like you need to like parse this a little bit like you can follow these big trends but there are certainly transformations you know uh yeah but there i mean there is an aspect of homoeroticism in a lot of these uh in in maybe like their more culture i mean even in in the nazi uh you know uh cultures around in the sort of ss uh in the manner bund you know yeah, uh yeah so kind of, i feel uh, like homo nationalism going on yeah maybe. well like uh yeah extreme I mean, not homo explicitly to the point of being yeah. yeah i feel like homo nationalism generally like in the jazz beer like sense is like you know the idea that our values, our democratic values are superior, like, here in the United States or whatever, because, yeah, to those of third world countries or those in the Middle East. Like, you can't be getting Gaza. Letting the local, letting, like, the Navy SEALs, like, march in the Pride Parade or something. Uh, Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. All the Pride Parades being sponsored by these, like, multinational corporations, like, we have to bring them to, you know, yeah, exactly, like, Like, F-18s doing a flyby and leaving a trail of, like, rainbow-colored exhaust, uh, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) That that type Uh, of stuff, yeah. Yeah, Uh, for Um, sure. Uh, I think that's the, uh, yeah, and I think that there might be, I mean, there was always kind of this, I mean, the seduction of the innocent. Well, that was the name of that book, right? Where the, uh, the guy was sort of, uh, up in arms about like, uh, the comic books and sort of the implied relationship between Batman and Robin. I mean, that is a little bit sus. Like what is Batman doing like with Robin? I mean, I understand <laughs> that like practically speaking, like he's there to give an audience surrogate. And so that Batman will have someone to talk to and like explain the plot. Like, you know, so you're yeah, like, well, Robin, yeah. we have to go here. Cause you know, but at the same time, like it's sus, like Batman, like, you know, why, like, well, it's it was even a, satirized. Like, he's a billionaire, like very, he has his weird yeah. orphan, like, you know. I know, like, I know. It, it, it was un, even, it's you untoward. know. I feel like in the Gotham community, people would be, like, looking askance at Bruce Wayne. Uh, you know, they would be, like, wanting to. I feel like that's not the best thing to do if you want to, like, lay low under the radar, at, like, you know, because you're secretly Batman. I feel like you wouldn't want to draw attention to yourself by, like, suspiciously adopting an orphan as a notorious, like, unmarried bachelor uh who's like a billionaire yeah. and lives like you know uh yeah well, but I mean, uh I, I, they seem made for each other in so many ways um well but he yeah was groomed. he was groomed by batman literally can a man can a boy consent to being robin <laughs> no like you can't That's consent true. to being well, robin i mean I, I i was never sure exactly if he was like 16 or if he was like you know 20 or something like that i like, feel you know. no i feel like he's pretty he's definitely at least 16 i feel like he might have been younger than that like uh, i guess the original robin yeah not like chris o'donnell like, but chris o'donnell yeah he I, he definitely wanted to be robin and i accept that but like you know in other iterations i feel like he you know the whole becoming of coming of age you know coming becoming nightwing you know that's like a whole thing so mm, uh yeah, yeah i yeah. feel like that's <laughs> yeah uh, i mean robin's the boy wonder you know he's not the teen wonder uh you know so you're thinking you're looking at like you know bruce wayne a little bit like mark collins rector 
Yeah, I am. Uh, well, even worse <laughs> in a way. Uh, yeah, well, he's basically the uh, stifler uh, in uh, Chad's world, you know? Yeah, but just uh, imagine, yeah, just imagine, like, Batman and his gruff voice, like, and wherever you go, I'll be watching yeah. you. You're and then calling, like, Commissioner Gordon and being like, Commissioner, this man, like, attacked. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing yeah. that's the only batman adaptation i ever want to write uh, yeah is one um, where yeah uh that, that really literally is like the only thing and i've i've been in um you know i've been in some rooms uh over the last uh, number of years where comic book uh projects maybe i'll talk about that at a later date uh, have been brought up and I was, you know, uh, encouraged to give my, my pitches and, um, really could not get over just the kind of, um, bad taste in my mouth, uh, of the whole, the way that those movies are constructed and the kind of themes that are present in them. But, you know, it's like the irony is like the only ones I would be passionate about are like, uh, I don't know, like Superman Red Sun, where he becomes like a hero of the Soviet Union or right, yeah, Batman actually being a, in, like Siberia instead of Kansas yeah, or whatever. and, yeah, and yeah. becomes like Stalin's like best friend. Yeah, uh, like that one would be cool. And also one that like directly subverts, you know, the the entire idea, which, you know, like Watchmen, that is why it's so iconic. And so yeah. enduring, even though they ruined it on even HBO. Though completely, yeah, 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 totally, totally. Like that doesn't like that show was bad, like on its own merits, but it really had nothing to do with Watchmen. I like you know the comic yeah. book Watchmen. Like, that was yeah, really the that, ultimate. Uh, like it was taking the one famous property yeah, I mean, that is kind of comic the, books as a medium, but you know, really like everything you can say about comic books, you can say about TV. I gotta say, like you know, to be oh, fair sure. to comics, like for TV sure. is also incredibly stupid. Uh, so yeah, but um, probably and that worse Watchmen than thing was a million ways. times stupider than than watch. I I just gotta say, you know, I, it's yeah. nice that they tried to like make some kind of like you know point about racism in America, but it just like didn't fit with like the rest of the stuff that they were trying to do vis a vis like the actual adaptation of Watchmen, and it just became like a mess. Like whatever, like none of it know, added up, uh, and they won a million sucked. Emmys, Basically. and uh, yeah, but it was know. yeah, it was so important. It was so important. Yeah. Um, <sighs> okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, there, there's a lot. Of, um, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But, it was uh, propaganda for sure, um, and uh, yeah, yeah. So I think there's a lot there. A lot um, of we're gonna do. Yeah, it is. Um, it is. So, I mean, that's the, the yeah, other thing about I mean, superheroes like, in yeah. general. It's like Uber mention that are basically world police that fly around and fight like goofy straw men who always are just that evil and want to just like enslave the whole world or blow up the world or do something that like nobody but like the Nazis uh, has seriously attempted to kind of do but then it's always like flipped up it, it's used for different purposes than like anti-nazism even captain america who was like created in some kind of proto mk project to create a super soldier to fight the nazis ends up being kind of like fashy in his own right and um and yeah. the, like the idea in watchmen which was so great which was like you know dr manhattan transforms into this being and then he gets used by nixon to win vietnam even though they dwell on that in the tv series it doesn't like explore like the immorality of that at all. Like, like Dr. Manhattan doesn't even care that he like destroyed like Vietnam and made it like a U.S. state and stuff. Uh, you know, like they, they yeah. didn't really seriously explore the kind of fucked up aspect of that story and instead kind of made it 
like okay in a way because like the the main cop hero like grew up in Saigon because her like you know dad was in the military yeah, and was, was like murdered by, by some like VC evil... terrorists yeah exactly they were resisting occupation of their country but like hey who are yeah but the, and Dr Manhattan like you know he was a black man uh, he became you know he under he he became a POC. Uh, that's like another like hilarious thing that like, that's a whole you know, Hamilton just, thing like, maybe that's the new yeah, alchemical people were talking about it today thing. The, yeah 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 the alchemical transformation thing. of a bunch of like slave owners into POCs the thereby to erasing is very interesting especially in light of Dr Manhattan himself you know being a character who's very much based on that idea of transmutation of elements and his symbol mm-hmm. being you know the hydrogen atom and all this stuff yeah and the whole like alchemical sure. thing and that whole show was just like oozing with like the sort of racial like guilt complex of the Damon Lindelof uh and like not really about like any like interesting engagement with a lot of this stuff it was just like oozing with a kind of pathology that like is mostly like exclusive to I mean I'm not saying that like you know uh like people car didn't like a response to the show like they may well have like and there were maybe good parts of it but I think that a lot of it was driven by this kind of Robin D'Angelo type thing that's like really more mm-hmm. about actually more about white people and like their feelings than it yeah, is yeah, about it feels like, incredibly you know, like actual, solipsistic like, and narcissistic yeah, basically yeah like you know, it's this uh, well, rich you know, LA if guy. I make Dr. Manhattan black like then that will somehow like ma- you know that will make me like better like you know that will help me somehow which like I don't know. It's not really like again. Who cares about any of this stuff? Like it's ultimately yeah. like, not really important. Like, uh, like what race Doctor Manhattan is, which is kind of <laughs> what I'm kind of getting at. Like you know, it doesn't matter. Like it's he's not real. Like uh, none of this is real. Like there you go. Well, there's there. Well, he kind of. I mean, if, if we're being perfectly honest, somewhere. like yeah, he know. he does it kind of super. He's kind of like walking around in like supernatural blackface. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he because so. he adopts like the identity of a yeah, of you're a right. man mm-hmm. of a man yeah. who had been killed, and like she gets to choose like what kind of skin she wants Doctor Manhattan to like wear, and I think I forget if she picks it or he picks it, but they're like, oh, pick this guy, and then it turns into a cow, the uh, you know who's a black man, and then but then the show kind of like really like kind of wants you to like kind of applaud this and like be down with it but it's kind of such a mm, i don't know it just felt a little icky to me and well i think that part of what it is is that watchmen originally was a critique of this idea of like superheroes and like trying to show how like if this were a real thing the people who participated in it would be like government sponsored spooks like rich freaks like mass murderers races oh yeah well not to mention making like yeah, making the but, original superhero yeah. hood, hooded justice uh who was a like supposed to be kind of a like a real the most pointed kind of parody of that yeah, exactly. which is like it the original superhero in the 30s was a was a clansman basically who was going around like yeah. beating up like black people and then right, in the exactly. show they made him into a gay black man who beats up racists and it's like yeah what so I feel like it kind you, of ugh. i mean he probably was that's another like home well that's another thing aspect of watchmen is that like you know a lot of the characters were like you know, at least implied to have some kind of like uh homoerotic like desire that was maybe being sublimated into the uh costume sure but, which is uh, interesting you know which is uh, uh, i feel like a thing like the camp aspect of superheroes you know another kenneth anger connection but like uh you know so i feel like the original hooded justice was implied to maybe uh 
be but anyway like this is like but, all no, but that, and that would have been that would have made more sense kind of, if if like yeah, you explored that but, flashback where it's like this crazy racist superhero guy is like dealing with his repressed sexuality right and that's maybe like why like it's kind it's, of it's, it yeah. kind of got confused between like the critique that watchman was doing with this whole thing around representation and it's like oh you know it's subversive in some way and like brave to make like spidey black you know or what if captain america were black you know, which I feel like would be, like, much more realistic also, like, you know, that they would experiment on, like, a black person, you know, but, uh, you know, <laughs> Yo, like, you uh, see, you, first, you like, gotta Tuskegee. go all the way with but, it. You have, you have that, to bring like, the but, history along with but, it if you're gonna do it. But that's the thing, like, I got kind of confused because I feel like the guy didn't really understand the material, like, uh, you know, and as a result, he was like, oh, you know, it's subversive to take these icons and these heroes and make them, you know, POC because then I'm, like, deconstructing these white icons, but the whole point was that they were not supposed to be icons. They were like a deconstruction of like, you know, which some people say like, you know, in the whole representation paradigm, it's not enough to be like, Oh, we're representing bad stuff. You know, we're showing that like, we're having this about being, no, you have to show positive people, and this is like, bad. Exactly. Like, you know, there needs to be model heroism, you know? Yeah. And it's I think incredibly, that, that there was, like, it a feels lot incredibly of confusion going on with like Dave and Lindelhoff's personal issues and like, just not the right thing to happen with. Yeah. At all. It was yeah, yeah, a mess. Exactly. Uh, a um, mess. So yeah, uh, and I'm, so, I'm very so, glad it won't be coming back. So I never had to hear about it again, but I'm sure there will be some new thing. Know, Maybe Lovecraft one, country. Although I have explored Lovecraft country has all the same problems and it was done. I don't know. It wasn't Damon Lindelof that did it. Right. It was another lost guy. It was Colton Q's. Right. Um, I don't know, but it, I, all I these lost guys are doing this now. And it's like, yeah. it, it's almost like it got printed out by the same kind of algorithm of like adapt this material and then, uh, do these kind of like kind of very obvious kind of, you know, uh, I don't know that that show has a whole problem where everybody just sounds like a 2020 Buzzfeed journalist when they're talking. Nobody sounds like a real person yeah. in the 1950s. Like they're all just having like, like the scene where, you know, the, satanic white lady after Emmett Till is murdered is like is like called out for her for her privilege for like her white privilege <laughs> and I'm just like how many ways could you write this scene with like a 1950s like black woman saying this that doesn't just like lazily use like Twitter language from 2020 like yeah. why do you I make know, her sound like she's in the, the K-Hive like this is ridiculous thing. like for, that's an old phenomenon I feel like in movies you know the best example I can think of is like uh Maximus from Gladiator, who has like 20th century like liberal values, but, like, like reestablish uh, a democratic you know, republic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Of course, stuff like that. that yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah and he's like woke, like yeah, he's, of the Roman like, Republic, which you know wasn't really like you know they did uh, definitely have still have like Vestal virgins and stuff, and we're still kind of like a weird uh, state cult like around like you know these uh, uh, sort of figures like a. Uh, it, you know but anyway like uh for sure yeah, yeah like Anyways, uh, uh, there's all sorts of examples of that you know i mean braveheart like being about like freedom you know like okay yep, like yep, give like me that. liberty yeah. or give me but, yeah, yeah give it's kind of especially yeah. egregious with like the new which i you know i think it's good that like you know people there's an like you know it, i mean it really is uh whether or not you attach any moral meaning to it the fact is that they're responding to a market demand uh, yeah. by an audience that like you know isn't all white and they want to see characters who, like, you know, are black as, as they are. Uh, yes. And I think that that's fair, you know, completely reasonable. But it, that is a funny aspect of, like, a lot of, uh, this, especially with historical pieces where you have, like, you know, uh, someone articulating, like, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates kind of, like, uh, 
very 21st century kind of critique of like whiteness uh or you mm-hmm. know that type of thing like in you know 19th century england or something like that yeah which isn't to like deny uh, yeah. that like those things were actually were operative and were like you know things that are worth dramatizing in that period but it, it's well you know we can't have subtext like you know god forbid yeah. there be any subtext like we have to have them be stated like because well, exactly people might think, it it, people might get it has the vibe of represent uh, something bad then that's doing something bad uh and you know except unless it's baphomet then it's fine <laughs> you know like <laughs> well no we love her country like, even racism, does like dabble we're it, racist, even, it, but if you represent yeah. baphomet that's just fine and like how dare you you're doing the satanic panic you're doing salem witch trials yeah uh, et well there's no shortage uh, of shows now that kind of like really embrace witchcraft and dark magic as like a cool like liberatory thing so well, yeah I mean, of course you know so there's uh, that whole thing but uh but anyways like we could uh i think there, there's a there's a few uh tangents there that like there's many we tangents could, we'll talk there. about We're it at a later date on our, like pop culture <laughs> like lame like uh you know uh old like takes about like you know uh pop culture but we'll save that for another we'll probably do one about a couple of these things i think that may be one about uh you know i think that japanese nationalism interesting topic you know there's a uh, one guy who i've been interested in uh i think uh, uh shumei okawa yeah shumei okawa mm-hmm. i hope i'm saying his name right uh but uh he was like a japanese nationalist who uh uh, did one of the first uh, Quran translations into Japanese, uh, and you know mm-hmm. he was like a big time like Pan Asianist. Uh, he's an interesting figure, um, and I think that that would be like a good uh, that could be a good potential subject. Like some of these, uh, maybe you know Mishima. Uh, that's like an interesting Japanese national. Sure, writer. There, there's uh, also one yeah. that I hear discussed periodically called Attack on Titan, which uh, a lot of people have said is both kind of like pretty good, but also has the most overt sort of fashy like nazi themes going on in it where there's like these gigantic it, it almost seems like they're like nephilim but they're like gigantic like Jew <laughs> monsters that like oh, roam the uh, earth Jews? and people live in these like fortresses and these titans and like what, come and because they they just look like a 4chan meme of like a evil jew i mean you know what I mean? Uh, okay, like, like they have right. exaggerated features that seem kind of like, mm, like they kind of remind you of that type of a, you know, a Nazi caricature or something like that. And I guess maybe there's other kind of like more Japanese fascist uh, kind of overtones to it right. in a kind of sci-fi context. But anyways, like I, I haven't seen it, so I can't quite. Uh, just a lot of people have said that, so I think that's there uh, are some interesting things going on there. Yeah, um, and obviously the whole superhero craze like could be we might maybe we could do like a superhero a superhero film discuss at some point. We'd have to pick like you know from the sea of them which one would be the most uh, you know. Interesting. I mean, we I could do Strange, we 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 could do uh, we could really, do well, well at the end of this month on Christmas, uh, Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four is uh, debuting on a streaming I think on disney uh or, uh, I don't know. or hbo max uh, i'm sorry uh, hbo max i uh, i you know i mean yeah like yeah, wonder I, woman I, is kind of whatever you know what? i'm gonna take a hard line and say like you know maybe we'll do something with this stuff but i'm not gonna get into the game of like that's something that's disgusting me about other podcasts where they like you know <laughs> do an easy episode where they're like we're gonna talk about the latest like and they just become like a fucking marvel fan podcast at that point 
Like, you're just literally, yeah. every single stupid Marvel Justice League thing that comes out, you give yourself yeah. a free episode. Like, I get it, it's hard to come up with content, you know, like, but come <laughs> on. Like, you know, uh, like, that's lame. Uh, so, well, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think maybe it might be better to take a larger scope of, like, maybe the history of Marvel or the history yeah. of superheroes as a genre or something along those yeah. lines. Because, uh, right. you know, some yeah, of the things know. are... Right. They're a tremendous yeah. cultural experience and they intersect with all kinds of things we've already talked about. But yeah, I, I, I agree. I don't want to just fall into doing um, contemporary reviews of like the new blockbuster uh, yeah. that comes out. Yeah, 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 um, exactly. That's so annoying to me. Like, okay, yeah, great. Mm-hmm. And like, what makes you like, who, why would I care about like what you have to say? But anyway, like, what, uh, <laughs> like, especially when like, you know, our takes probably aren't very unique. Like, I'm sure like a lot of people have like, you know, are upset about like these trends and like uh but anyway like uh yeah we're not alone out there but yeah um star wars also but i think that actually is interesting because george lucas has that sort of connection with the sort of milieu of la and the sort of joseph campbell like yeah uh, and this is really like a very powerful modern myth that yeah has become part of that whole disney milieu so i think that yeah yeah Let's move on to uh, number yeah, yeah, four yeah. now. All right, yeah, this is from Bissell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I guess um, I'll, I'll, yeah, I can read yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, so uh, Bissell writes, okay, so Hidden Wealth is coming up in the grotto, and this is a kind of question I've had for a while. Is the official story about how wealth is concentrated, e.g. constant trumpeting of Bezos and Gates trading places as the world's richest people, actually concealing a picture that's much more stratified? Do the Rockefellers, Rothschilds, or every other old money or, or other very old money families command trillions in wealth, as some researchers believe? Does Standard Oil still exist and own every major strategic resource in the Western sphere of influence? If so, where do those like Bezos and Gates fit into the picture? Are they just subordinates or even rhetorical punching bags presented to distract the public from an even more intolerable level of inequality than they can imagine? This hmm. is an interesting question because I think that you really have to it's there's many layers here because on one hand like yeah i think that 
Well, it depends on what the official story of how wealth is concentrated is. Like, economics is something that, like, I certainly, like, am not, like, a trained economist, which I consider to be good because everyone I know who's a trained economist is basically... Yeah, it's a bourgeois pseudoscience. Yeah, and I know people who, like, went in to, like, you know, learn about it to subvert the system and then came out, like, being like, I'm a Christopher Hitchens capitalist, you know? Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, exactly. what the fuck? Like, you know, invasion of the body snatchers type stuff, but... Uh, yeah, so, like, uh, but that said, like, I, yeah, exactly, it's a bourgeois pseudoscience, and I think that, you know, within the framework of that, there's lots of different ways to understand wealth and capital, and, uh, you know, capital is kind of, you know, a way, a, a representation of power or a certain cachet, and I think that mm-hmm. maybe, like, these sort of, like, Forbes lists, like, the richest people, like, maybe don't represent types of wealth or assets that Mm -hmm. uh you know might we don't have to know what their exact metric is because there's different ways of measuring wealth that you know might uh come up with a different result and i think that that is maybe where some of the stuff comes in and i do think that you know these people who are wealthy their extreme wealth like comes from somewhere like i don't think you become so wealthy like uh bezos and bill gates like to the point where uh you're not like in some way beholden to some other like larger power structure that like yeah. you're then sort of uh become that uh, you then become kind of assimilated to yeah you definitely that, yeah, don't maybe... exist separate from it and i think yeah. even more than that people have to especially these guys in the silicon valley generation that we are told kind of came out of nowhere that were just like middle class eggheads with a dream and a vision who mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know through hard work in their garages they always start in their fucking garage bezos and gates both uh and i think uh jobs and wozniak as well you know they always start in the garage just like the ramones i remember there was a commercial back in the day that was like comparing like the ramones starting in the garage and like silicon valley billionaires and like how Mm -hmm. cool it was uh and you know how punk rock it was but you know i think if you scratch just a little bit beneath the surface you see how much help these people got and how they they really didn't come out of nowhere just like a lot of like the pop stars and like musicians and stuff in like the sixties and all that, they come from kind of like plugged in networks like Jeff Bezos's, uh, you know, for example, I forget it was either his stepfather or grandfather, uh, was one of the founders of DARPA, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and I think he was, and he was like a Cuban, I think he was like an anti-Castro, like Cuban uh, immigrant, um, Miguel Mike Bezos, who he took his name from. He's actually, his real father was Ted Jorgensen, who uh, is, the, the, you know, exited out of his life. Um, and uh, he grew up in Houston, Texas, after they married uh, into the Bezoses. And Mike Bezos worked as an engineer for Exxon. Talk about Standard Oil. That's one of the spinoffs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it is. And then, um, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 the, here it is. Bezos's maternal grandfather, so through his mother, was Lawrence Preston Geis, a regional director of the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission in Albuquerque. Uh, so this and this guy did go on. He's also related to George Strait, the country singing star. So that's weird um, through his mother. So uh, Lawrence Preston Geis, yeah, was somebody who was like, you know, yeah, worked for the um, Atomic Energy uh, Commission uh, and uh, worked his way up through the ranks of uh, Exxon as a petroleum engineer and manager. Um, he's actually still alive, born in 1915. 
Um, and uh, yeah, he was a uh, he was an ad- administrative assistant in the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Joined the Navy in World War Two. Um, and later on, the AEC and DARPA ARPA. So, like, there you go, right there. His grandfather, like, worked for DARPA, and so this guy is not just kind of like, uh, you know, just uh, some some nobody who came out of nowhere. And uh, when you look at Gates, it's the same thing. William Henry Gates III uh, was born into a family in Seattle where his dad was an incredibly uh, successful and influential attorney and his mother, uh, Mary Maxwell, was uh, a kind of a, a well-known socialite and fixture from a very relatively for Washington, like old money um, uh, banking family. Um, and uh, she had a lot of connections. Uh, she was the first female president of King County's United Way chapter. She did a lot of civic activism. Both the parents were very involved in Planned Parenthood, like when Bill was growing up. Uh, she serves on the University of Washington Board of Regents. And here's what's kind of important is uh, at the United Way's executive committee, she served most notably with IBM CEO John Opel um, and then became the first woman uh, on the first interstate bank of Washington's board of directors. And basically, uh, there was a period where um there was a period where when bill was coming out of college um yeah in 1980 uh let's see yeah beyond the seattle area um she was she was on the board she would have been a great interlocked subject she was on the boards of like tons of different banks and corporations including first interstate bank of washington unigard security insurance group pacific northwest bell telephone company which became u.s west communications and cairo incorporated which is uh, the local tv station uh, beyond the seattle area gates was appointed um to the board of directors of the Uni- national united way in 1980 becoming the first woman to lead it in 1983 her tenure on the national board's executive committee is believed to have helped microsoft based in seattle at a crucial time in 1980 she discussed her son's company with john opal a fellow committee member and the chairman of IBM. Opal, by some accounts, mentioned Mrs. Gates to other IBM executives. A few weeks later, IBM took a chance by hiring Microsoft, then a small software firm, to develop an operating system for its first personal computer. Um, so, okay, yeah, wouldn't it be nice to have your mom sitting on a charity board with the chairman of IBM, who literally, like, passes your company's name along, and then get, and they hire you to develop the first operating system for their first personal computer? (laughs) Like, Um, wow, that's pretty lucky. Um, uh, you know, yeah. and of course, you know, we love it when parents, you know, help their kids. Up. But the, but you know, that gets kind of like suppressed, uh, and you don't hear. We and then, love you know, it, folks. once, we yeah, love, we yeah. love it. Don't we but, love it uh, when parents help their kids out? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And, um, and so, you know, basically, those are just two examples of like these guys having the most kind of insider connections possible for starting big Silicon Valley companies. And then of course, like you can't even disentangle anymore. Um, the kind of, uh, uh, you can't disentangle like the interactions between like Microsoft and Amazon and like the U S government, the military industrial complex, the intelligence apparatus. Like I think the CIA hosts some of their like cloud servers on Amazon cloud services. Uh, mm-hmm. and you know, not to mention whatever the hell else he's doing with like his, his rockets going into space, probably working with the defense department for that. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and just, you know, Bill Gates, like the, 
the level of influence you have being like the software monopolist that gets to create basically the dominant one operating system that the entire world adopts like in the 80s and 90s and 2000s and still to this day is probably by numbers. I mean, more people do use Apple here, but their market share is like incredibly small compared to Microsoft, which I think has something like. I don't know. I know about 10 years ago, it was like 95% of the market for operating systems was Microsoft. So like, and then, you know, Internet Explorer, like driving Netscape out of business, like, you know, they had that whole like monopoly uh, suit from the government and antitrust shit. And um, yeah, I mean, like, uh, it's, you know, these, so, okay, getting back to the main question though, it's like, where do they fit into the picture? I do think in a weird way that maybe they are kind of like, front men they are the face men and you know they validate a very classic american capitalist myth of like the normal guy that comes up with a great idea and works really hard and then dominates his industry and becomes a titan of industry right i mean the, mm-hmm. the silicon valley is really like a reboot uh, if you will of the gilded age narratives uh, in the late 19th century where you had yeah. you know jay jay gould and the harriman and uh vanderbilt and and Carnegie and Rockefeller and Morgan and all these guys who were lauded as like, you know, the masters of the universe. But um, but I think I don't know. I mean, I feel like back then, uh, I don't know if it's too far out to say that I think they genuinely uh, amassed those fortunes. And I think a lot of what happened in the 20th century was them kind of building out institutions to entrench their own power and influence that they had accrued in such a short amount of time that's why you have like university of chicago founded by the rockefellers you have carnegie mellon you have vanderbilt university you have all these kind of things and they started basically getting involved in social engineering in the early 20th century like in the first maybe two two three decades and then eventually i think during the new deal era a lot of them like went into government like avril harriman was you know the u.s ambassador to the soviet union and um, was instrumental in kind of that, uh, you know, building out the, the the Cold War apparatus, and you had the Dulleses and all those people. So, I but but you, I think Bissell gets to like an interesting point that, like, where kind of are the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds and all these other people today? Like, mm-hmm. where do they fit into the mix? Because they're definitely out there. They still have a ton of money. Um, and at least with David Rockefeller, they were incredibly involved in the shaping of public policy in like Mm. the U S government, you know, I mean, he, but, but, you know, I just, I just Googled them for a second and I looked it up and, and it said like, uh, what's the Rockefeller family's like total fortune and CNBC in 2018, uh, quoted it at around, or in 2016, it was quoted at about 11 billion, which like, that's a lot of money for sure. Mm -hmm. But when you have Jeff Bezos running around with $200 billion, it, you know, by conventional analysis, you would say, well, like Bezos and Gates are more powerful now, but the Rockefellers have had like a hundred year head start and they're baked so deeply into, I mean, they've been doing the philanthropy shit that Bill Gates just started doing like 10 years ago. And Jeff Bezos has barely done any charity stuff so far. So I think that's usually a natural next step uh, for, 
for these families as they accrue massive amounts of wealth. Sometimes some of them get into politics. Uh, sometimes they get into more like cultural type of stuff. Um, yeah. Sometimes they just go off and do a bunch of ayahuasca uh, and become hippies yeah. and get into new agey right. shit. Like that's something the Rockefeller family is like deeply. I, I do know for like a fact the Rockefeller family is like very into. Um, well, you heard that like, from that shaman. We maybe. Well, you heard that from. I don't know if it's for a fact. It's. I don't want. I don't want. I, I don't want to go into. I don't want to go into the, the the shaman right now. But uh, <laughs> I. It, it wasn't uh, just from the shaman. It was from a lot of people around the shaman. It was from people that were. I I, I believe uh, it, but you know. It was from other people too. It wasn't just from him. Yeah. Uh, there, there's right. reason to believe that that is true. And oh, uh, for that right, matter, for that matter, for that matter, Bill Gates as well is very into mm. that kind of thing, even yes. though he doesn't publicly talk about it. Uh, and maybe some other big, very wealthy billionaire people. And I just think it's a, one of the personal <laughs> observations of my yes. life was that, huh, like, why haven't these people, uh, I don't know, uh, decided that like rapacious global capitalism is like not the way forward uh, from, you know, if they're having all these spiritual revelations, maybe, um, you know, I mean, it's a little, hmm, a little interesting that, you know, are they just doing this to like, it kind of like, you know, people in Silicon Valley microdosing, like they're just doing it to like come up with new angles uh, for how to like make more money and like conquer more mm-hmm. of the global economy and stuff like that. So, um, you know, there's a lot of weird, and of course the melons have that same background with like Timothy Leary and all that weird, you know, in the UFO yeah. stuff and uh, you know, everything from cryptocurrency yeah, the to Rothschild so, still, you know, are very active. I think there's a lot of like, you know, prominent Rothschilds today. Uh, yeah. And of course, I, the yeah. Vanderbilt's like Anderson Cooper is a primetime news host on CNN. He's the son of Gloria Vanderbilt, um, who made some very creepy dollhouse art uh, back in the day that somebody was sharing on the grotto. Um, <laughs> and uh, and just, you know, I mean, but I, I, I have to say, like, I don't quite it, it is kind of an open question and i'm not really sure i mean it also gets back to the idea uh, that we were talking about in the lombardi episode about like yamashita's gold and stuff it's uh-huh. kind of like we're not talking necessarily about yamashita's gold here but maybe what we're talking about is that there's like off the books assets that are not publicly acknowledged that these people actually right, do have no matter where they got it from yeah, there's different ways of understanding wealth, and, like, I don't trust, like, these, like, Forbes lists or whatever to truly represent, like, the mechanics of, like, the, you know, the movement of global wealth and, like, the networks of uh, the exchange of capital uh, at all. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. you know, or who is, like, at the top at all. Uh, well, yeah, I have to believe I, that it would kind of it would freak people out if the Rockefeller family was advertised as even having like three trillion dollars or something that would like freak people out a little bit. Yeah, maybe not anymore because you know, like, they're progressive. But like, you know, I think in general throughout the Cold War, that would have been a very potentially embarrassing thing. You know, mm-hmm. um, for, you know, obviously in the 80s and 90s, like flashing your wealth became kind of cool again. But even still, it was like people like Donald Trump, who wasn't even really that much of a billionaire at all, was getting kind of a hold with his gilded apartments and his, his private jet. You know, like that guy was the one they wanted you paying attention to. They didn't want you paying attention to like Lawrence Rockefeller or whatever the hell he was doing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it, it makes you yeah. wonder to what extent there are these kind of celebrity billionaires and trump's like an extreme example because he was literally like a game show host on tv 
um, kind of playing this character. But like even Bill Gates is kind of like acting a little bit and Jeff Bezos mm-hmm. is kind of acting a little bit. And so, yeah. you know, are there more, are there families, uh, uh, kind of interlocked families that kind of do constitute what we would call like the ruling class that um, have a lot of capital and assets that they're sitting on that are squirreled away or laundered or don't exist in that Forbes calculation. But, yeah, you know, and there's also are, are like, you know, this doesn't have to do with wealth, but there's definitely like, you know, in a lot of the world and it's hard to apprehend, like maybe in the United States, but definitely in a lot of the world, like if you're from a prominent family, like in you just have blown all your money like, and you, you know, like, have made nothing of yourself, like, if you're from the right family, like, you're still, like, a god, you know, like, uh, you still have the cachet of your family name to fall back on, like, forever, you know, like, yeah, uh, and, 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 I, and I mean, I know, I've known people that come from, um, uh, like o- over the years, it's not totally untrue in the U.S. either. But you know, no, yeah, and, and I've, more true I've, in places with long established aristocracies. You know, yeah, uh, I, that that kind of um that kind of like incestuous like uh uh kind of fuck up like European royalty kind of thing of like you know uh like you've been you know in this you your family has been in the social position for like ten generations maybe more and like you're just. Like, uh, but, you know, I think it, it also is there's a peculiarity to the American context because <clears throat> for the most part, the wealth has been acquired through like industrialism and uh, and through industrial capitalism is how. And then yeah. and usually usually what all these people do and the Rockefellers, you know, Bissell mentioned Standard Oil, what they really did was like if you get big enough in a kind of like extraction industry or something like that, or manufacturing, the the real come up is that you, you sort of flip, you roll those profits over into starting a bank. And then that's where you get the kind of forever money because then you're just lending and charging interest and you can make moves to like really, uh, you, you kind of ascend to a new level in the economy. Like, I mean, you know, the Rockefellers basically own Chase Manhattan Bank through most of the 20th century. David Rockefeller was the head of it. And that was, you know, they were oil men. They weren't bankers. But like that's mm-hmm. the that's the ultimate um, position in like the capital pyramid, I guess, that you can attain is to be one of these mega bankers. And now uh, these these banks are so vast now, though, that like they're such international conglomerates that I don't know if like any one or two families like controls like Wells Fargo or but I guess you'd have to look at the board of direct you'd have to be like Lombardi and look at like the board of directors and like who still sits on the boards of all these companies and also like yeah you mentioned like this whole thing of like you know the myth of the individual and like I think that's a big problem with some of this stuff because you like a lot of the time they don't even consider families like if you're in a family with someone unless like there's some horrible falling out and even sometimes if there is you'll always have like your mom's back if she needs help for whatever reason and your mom certainly will always have your back and so will your father Mm -hmm. you know and like you can't like you know when you look at these lists of the richest people it's always like one guy you know like it's not like uh bill gates family it is it is is bill and melinda gates for the well that's their foundation but in terms of like the richest people in the world like it's just bill gates by himself you know, like, uh, and they don't, yeah, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is a thing, but, like, yeah, she's yeah. not considered to be, like, you know, on the list of billionaires, like, and she doesn't have her own wealth, even though, like, you know, theoretically, yeah. his family could, down the generations, like, perpetuate itself, like, in a point, but, 
<laughs> well, like, yeah, you know, I mean, you like, can't like, compare like the wealth of family, like a two hundred year old established family, to like you know uh, someone who's like a new Silicon Valley upstart. It's just not the same nature, you know. Yeah, exactly. One is necessarily more powerful than the other, like or, you know, but it's a it's a different nature. It's a different nature. Um, and, and we'll see if like the Gates children and the Jobs children and the Bezos children end up kind of get going into like, you know, the tech business, uh, you know, after their father, you know, after their, the way their fathers did. And uh, mm-hmm. maybe there will be like multiple intergenerational like dominance of uh, the tech industry. That's possible, especially as things get more stratified and they're going to have so many material advantages to get the bet the most elite education and, you know, uh, basically probably be able to do startups that are kind of, uh, you know, kind of like George W. Bush, like even if they fail, maybe they'll just get used for, you know, intelligence cutouts, uh, and money laundering, <laughs> like, uh, like yeah. the previous, uh, ruling class did with their children. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they'll yeah, go to work for the CIA. Uh, I don't know. And, uh, but I do think to some extent, sometimes they do serve as convenient rhetorical punching bags and, uh, and, but I don't know how much money I would assume there is money that is like off the books, especially, okay. If we're going to entertain the idea that like the parts of the U S government are complicit, say in like the international drug trade, then a lot of that money ends up getting laundered through mega banks. Uh, some of which like used to be owned by, you know, these very wealthy families and or they at least were on the board so you'd have to wonder like do the rockefellers get a taste of like the international drug money that gets pushed by the cia like i'd have to imagine the disposition of these people which is pretty like ayn rand fountainhead like john galt like i i did this i deserve all my money you know would they really be okay with like all of it going back into just like some black even some like you know uh black fund for the cia or something like that like are they making profit off this as well and then if so they would have to launder it or hide it or something like that and so Mm -hmm. we don't know actually like the kind of the shadow economy like how many assets do these rich families own in the shadow economy um and as well as in the above ground economy like they still own you know shares like they all have trusts and stuff that are invested in all kinds of different things so um as long as the system keeps humming along they make profit i mean it's literally what marx talked about is like the core of capitalism is like people sitting around not working earning money off their cap Mm -hmm. like their capital earns money for them so they can just sit around and be elites and not do anything that's really the high level and that's like that's different from even a kind of a petty bourgeois like rich person or a professional that makes a lot of money those people still to some extent have to like work for a living even if maybe they're exploiting other people below them but this is a whole nother cast of kind of um i don't know i guess you could say wendigos uh that just like have an insatiable lust for (laughs) cannibalizing the wealth of, of other people's labor and um and just can't stop and uh you know to what extent uh i I, i'm inclined to say that they don't have like a yamashita's gold level of like 60 trillion dollars lying around (laughs) because then why would they go through all the machinations they do to start Mm -hmm. wars and traffic drugs and like um uh you know uh make us all take a sketchy vaccine like i don't know um you know like (laughs) like why are they Um, like trying to socially engineer us so hard if they have so much money that like they'll always be in control and like you know nothing we could do could like stand up to their material resources Uh, i don't know 
Yeah, but I think mm-hmm. there's, there, there may be something there. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, and I do want to say on the Standard Oil point, like, Standard Oil is kind of like a, uh, you know, one of those skeletons in, like, those old movies where, like, those fantasy movies where, like, the, you, you knock over the skeleton and then the lost bones fall apart, but they always, like, reassemble, you know? <laughs> uh, I feel like yeah, that's kind of yeah. what's happening with Standard Oil because, like, it got broken up into all these tiny little smaller Standard Oils. And then slowly, like, they start to reconglomerate, you know, like, they one merge time. back together. Like, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, so like, now, I, I mean, saw, yeah, to, I remember. Yeah, just, seeing, oh, okay, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Oh, I, I was oh, just going to say the say, chart. I'm looking at the yeah. chart. Sorry, I'm, I'm just looking at the chart for Standard Oil on Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, it is weird. They have done a mighty job of mystifying it because basically, you know, you wouldn't see the name Standard Oil anymore. It, quote, doesn't exist. The Seven Sisters companies that were split up in, like, 1911, quote, don't exist. But if you've heard of BP, ExxonMobil, and Chevron, these are all spinoffs of Standard Oil. So, in a way, they're basically still around and are, like, three out of the four, you know, monopoly companies that control everything. Yeah, and I remember, and actually found, I found a Daily Cost article attesting to this, but I remember, like, around when the BP oil spill happened, Obama mm-hmm. had, like, sort of given the, uh, like, uh, according to this article on the Daily Cost, uh, in the wake of BP's disastrous and criminal conduct, the Obama administration is poised to permit the reassembling of a corporation deemed 100 years ago to be too big and too corrupt. Oil industry sources were quoted as saying that ExxonMobil has been given a green light by the U.S. government to, quote, take a look at BP. A merger would create a group with a stock market value of $400 billion. Both firms refused to comment on the speculation. So wow. I guess that didn't happen, but it definitely yeah. was like floated out there. And that would basically be the full like reassembly of Standard Oil. Uh, did they? You know, do you I guess think, they need do Chevron you think the, too. But uh, yeah. do you think the Rockefellers maybe did the Deepwater Horizon? Uh, you know, that's funny. a question wow. for another day. Uh, yeah. That's yeah. Yeah, 
or Zix. Uh, yeah, uh, well, I think again, it, I yeah. think they're referencing a strange little town uh, in the middle of California that is called Zizix uh, that you pass uh, on the five freeway. I think mm, okay. um, between San Francisco and L.A. Uh, but it's strange. also spelled a little different. But uh, yeah, I think it was a joke of making an impronounceable name because we mm-hmm. mispronounced uh, her first name. Um, uh, yes, so. oh, this is uh, Kutiche, uh, as uh, yes, we, which I think uh, might, Kate, Katie might have been yeah, Katie uh, Che. Uh, uh, yeah, sorry, yeah. yeah, that maybe it was a cool name. I'm sorry, and I'm we sure I got, it. I'm sure I got Zizix wrong too, but uh, or maybe you got it right, but I, I was thinking Zix, uh-huh. uh, but or Zix, whatever, uh, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. but uh, you know, uh, yeah, well, if she changed it because the last one we had trouble with, then uh, well, I don't know if this has solved the problem, but uh, hopefully. Uh, she knows she doesn't take it. Uh, you know, she doesn't take offense anyway. So, okay. Uh, she asks, I had a follow up question about the new Satanist aesthetic among young rappers, given how young they are. And given the stats you cited about how black Americans are the least likely demographic to be into the devil. I find it curious that so many of these young rappers have a satanic aesthetic fleshed out when they come on the scene. Do you think there's some kind of ritual encouragement or inculcation happening from the music producers or execs? Uh, probably. Well, I don't know if it's like inculcation, (laughs) But it, like, uh, you know, definitely, like, I, it seems, like, unlikely that there isn't some selection, like, you know, like, I think a lot of people have talent, you know, like, uh, Mm -hmm. the idea that the people who make it, like, you know, are the most, simply the most talented, you know, like, they, like, just, there's no one else out there who's as talented as Saw Baby, you know, like, only, (laughs) only Saw Baby can do what Saw Baby does, you know, like, uh, that I don't think is true, so I think that, at some point there's like oh i like someone is saying oh i like this guy's style I like how he has an upside down cross with six and six tattooed in his head i like you know how little uzi vert is telling everyone they're going to hell you know etc etc <laughs> uh like or you know come to hell you want to go to hell pig like yeah uh, let's <laughs> please pig me. yeah <laughs> um yeah no so, i yeah i'm gonna go with de- a definite probably because i think there is some kind of yeah maybe ritual encouragement i think as like coops to nicka said it was like you know the way he was propositioned by a record exec was kind of subtle and kind of jokey but i think i don't know yeah i wonder to what extent I it's mean, like a feedback loop like, in the culture of I mean, you see other young rappers getting uh getting yeah getting a lot of heat by doing yeah yeah but yeah, or okay. like takashi 69 or like all these people or exentacion mm-hmm. even like y- you see that kind of happening and then um and even just like the the rise of trap music and its roots in memphis horrorcore and juicy mm-hmm. J kind of being a little bit like he smoked a blonde of death and you know uh, <laughs> you know made a deal with the devil he's doing de- he's on that devil shit and so uh, maybe it kind of like it, i guess you know culture can operate in this way and kind of a feedback loop where people start to notice that like that's kind of in vogue right now and so there's kind of a race to like make your aesthetic more pronounced and i mean even if you look at mainstream pop music you go to any article on vigilant citizen it's like ariana grande uh katie perry lady gaga like all these other you know uh, i think probably uh definitely cardi b Nicki minaj they're all doing like monarch symbols with butterflies <laughs> and sonic tiles and like mm, weird yeah. like two-faced like symbol and one eye shots all the time and i wonder like if people kind of subconsciously intuit that like that is like the cool thing to do and so they mimic it or i don't know maybe i do want to push back a little bit on for one like i think that there is a an order of difference between uh like you know 
being explicitly satanic and like some of the because i think there might be something to some of the vigilances and stuff but you know uh I think that, like, you know, some of the monarch stuff is a little, like, you know, two-faced symbolism, like that, you know, the idea of duality, like, that's a pretty common, like, doesn't necessarily uh, yeah. mean that it's always I'm, a reference I'll, okay, to Okay, I'll grant you, I'll grant you that not every you time know, a butterfly shows up in an, in an episode, in a music video, that it's, like, monarch. Butterflies are almost more reliable than some of the stuff, you know? Like, the idea of the duality of the human being, like, I feel like that itself is not really like substantive proof of monarch yeah like, but the the way the like, way stuff, in which some know. of these videos uh employ things like the no tears left to cry yeah. video by Arne yeah, Grund maybe. where she's she's taking off masks of her face and like looking in a mirror and she has like eight different like alter masks of like her face and the camera's like spinning around upside down in like a disorienting way and it's all very like dark and creepy and it's just kind of like uh, you know uh, like, yeah i mean i'm really not knowledgeable enough to evaluate i'd have to like take a uh, individual video like we had to do it on a video by video basis to truly evaluate whether there is something there i mean i do think that like as we've kind of documented on the podcast the occult and like its symbols are like a huge influence in like the world of art like in the mm -hmm. united states like kenneth anger someone who we talked about as being a huge influence particularly in the genre of the music video yeah. like was someone who was a very avid occultist and like a huge like fan of crowley like so uh i think that you know there's definitely something to be said on on that front for sure um but i do also think that there is like you know it's a different phenomenon from like the real explicit satanism that you see like uh and, and i mean maybe these phenomena i i shouldn't call them totally different because there might be connected in some way because i do think that the whether there or not there's like a ritual encouragement where it's like come on saw baby like come to the back of your like you know your agent saying like come to the back of my office and we're gonna do like a ritual like to show you your true master lucifer like mm -hmm. i don't like uh you know but i'm sure that they're not saying like hey man like you know uh like uh it's not cool like how you like worship the devil or like whatever you know like or something like or like yeah there's uh, definitely you know, not it doesn't seem to be pushback sure from like, the ANRs you know, and people I'm like sure that at the record anything, labels there's encouragement like yeah, yeah man like you know that's all bullshit exactly like you know like uh uh it's there uh, seems that's just, to be like, for simple people like forget about these like you know stupid god believers just like do your art express yourself blah blah you know like uh yeah, i'm sure that like yeah. part of the confidence they have in defending what they say is because the people around them like reinforce that you know uh i'm because cool you know there's static. all kinds of instances uh, of artists wanting to go in a certain direction and the record labels having absolute kind of authority to be like no especially when they're on the come up and they're like teenagers like you really are yeah. kind of a little bit as much as you might try like you are heavily uh influenceable by mm -hmm. these people that are literally giving you like the shot and could take it away at any moment and so there's a lot of pressure to like mm, construct your brand in this way or wear this or get this kind of tattoo and for rappers i think you know uh you know like that that's definitely a common thing and you know I think you're right that like the, the myth of meritocracy is also uh, a kind of a bullshit one in the music industry. Not saying these people aren't talented, but you know, you always, I, I've always noticed that over the years, like certain people that kind of get a lot of attention and a long career. Like, I don't know. I just saw a sus picture by like machine gun Kelly. And it's like, oh, I can, yeah. like he's somebody that like I heard on the, you know, talked about in like, you know, uh, you know, maybe tabloids or whatever for like 10 years. And it's like, I couldn't tell you one song that I ever heard 
heard like on the radio or anywhere else and maybe i listened to one once and thought like it sucked but like they just like it's like he, he was a, a chosen one Eminem, i guess yeah oh, exactly okay. again like it just like so happens uh you know it's definitely not the case that like you know, no one can do what Machine Gun Kelly does, or no one is as funny as Pete Davidson, you know? Like, yes, uh, exactly. Like, you know, yeah, no one yeah. is as good a comedian as, or, like, no one has the political analysis, like, or the understanding of uh, you know, uh, Chapo Trap House. I don't know. Like, you know, like, uh, <laughs> well, it's uh, also, like, I, I thought, yeah, like the, the Pete Davidson thing is funny because, uh, you know, I think, um, I think the idea that like it's brave for like, you know, the entertainment industry to hire somebody with borderline personality disorder is kind of hilarious because like how many like stars and fucking celebrities must have BPD is probably like pretty uh, high. <laughs> like, it's like as if they haven't been represented throughout, <laughs> like, um, yeah. <laughs> Exactly um, the kind of people that would rise to the top in this horrible system is like, you know, uh, people with severe BPD. So um, um, yeah, I guess yeah. now he can he can be open about it or whatever. But I was right. a little I don't sussed know. out. Yeah. Uh, um, um, word. I mean, yeah, like, but again, the point is that, like, certainly there's nothing uniquely, like, funny about Pete Davidson, like, compared to all the people, like, you know, and struggling in comedy clubs. I'm sure... I doubt he would deny that or whatever, you know. So like at some probably point, probably right, probably right. There's a decision. Yeah, and she and, and who made. is he? Who is he romantically involved with? Uh, uh, Ariana Grande. He got a tattoo of her like a bunny mask that he got covered up, I guess. Um, which looks exactly you know, like a Playboy bunny thing. Which you know, uh, it's uh, there's a lot going on with Ariana Grande. Uh, um, and her grand um, her, her like grandfather was like a uh, defense contractor that developed top secret sonar technology for the U.S. Navy and florida hmm. whose favorite that. song that he would always like get her to sing was somewhere over the rainbow hmm, very, uh, uh, <laughs> what well, you know what there will be an ariana episode one day oh, okay. uh, maybe, right. maybe within yeah. uh anyways uh i think um, um yeah yeah uh, so i don't know about I, it too I, think, much. I remember that song that was literally like uh you know the song from uh the sound of music like that was constantly on the radio and it's like wow this is I guess this is a new thing where like this is supposed mm. to be a new song but it's literally like you know uh like all of these bad bitches are my friends you oh know? the like, seven uh, rings yeah seven rings one. Uh, yeah which is even yeah. that has seven rings has like a weird i made up those lyrics but that's basically it. what it was like yeah you know like, yeah, uh, yeah i don't think she had these are a few of my favorite things and she friends, i think she was but, dressed like a little cat uh, or something like crawling around uh-oh. with like a little cat tail and little cat mm. ears yeah exactly it's weird mm, i i also wonder to what extent they are aware of like the conspiracy i think we talked about this before about at least about like the illuminati thing how it's become a meme now yeah, or like yeah, they know like, about that yeah they'll but hang they, a lampshade like, on it and and say like yeah i am a haha yeah. you think i'm illuminati again, or something you know their response is the response of uh, certain podcasters you know it's the lol cia response like you know like yes. yeah, I'm illuminati you know like they're like i'm gonna uh-huh. make a bit out of it because like even though this is a serious research podcast like it's actually just like a fucking comedy show like yeah <laughs> you know like time for a bit about how i am a zionist like uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah. yeah. Anyways. Uh, okay. I think we can. Um, yeah. Maybe yeah. Uh, we could move on here. We got three questions left. I think we. All can, right. All right. Yeah. I think we, we, should, we can make we this in. Yeah. We uh, we're at two twenty five right now. So I think I think if we're good, we can make this in less than three hours. Well, um, all right. Yeah. Okay. Let's try it. Okay. Let's go. Okay. All so right. so man, man in a predicament. predicament yeah. Um, a new member of the grotto asks, uh, mm-hmm. would. Uh, would you guys be interested in doing an episode on Ted Gunderson? Is he a limited hangout, private eye, psyop dude? 
All right. Is the three hours still looking good after this one? Uh, let, yeah, let's... Um, well, it's not uh, that I don't have a ton to say about Ted Gunderson, but I think um, we definitely, to answer directly, yes, we are going to do an episode on Ted Gunderson because he pops up in a bunch of different stories that we've talked about already, uh, including the Geraldo special that Aquino was on. Uh, he was also a guest on that and was very much, you know, a contra Aquino, uh, no pun intended, um, you know, basically uh, saying that, yes, there were organized satanic cult groups that were murdering people and abusing children and maybe were involved with, you know, the military or something like that. And yeah, I mean, he, he is a strange character. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's the simplest way to put it. He was an FBI agent for anybody who doesn't know. He was a former FBI agent who was a kind of mid-level management. He was a special agent in charge of the Los Angeles office and also the Memphis office in either the late sixties or early seventies. I'd have to double check if he was there during the assassination of Martin Luther King. Uh, but he did admit, uh, later in life to have participated in the COINTELPRO program, but said that he regretted it in retrospect. Um, but you know, already that kind of makes him a little bit of a kind of suspicious figure. And he was kind of one of the main, like, figures in like the 1990s that would run around promoting things like the monarch program about satanic cult abuse about even after the satanic panic kind of like fell by the wayside in in the main culture he was really big about like going around to different churches around the country he would like make like vhs tapes of his recording like he used to do a whole lot of like you know you could mail order a bunch of like ted gunderson lectures uh that were on you know videotape and a lot of those are still on youtube and i remember finding them years ago and kind of being intrigued by this guy who unlike a lot of quote conspiracy theorists seem to have pretty uh pretty substantial credentials and the kind of authority like the law enforcement background to mm-hmm. you know the fact that he was saying that this was going on and he wasn't kind of half-stepping it. He was saying this is, like, really going on. There were, like, thousands of children being abducted every year. Um, it, it may be kind of interested in him. But then as time went on, I think he died in, like, 2010 or 2011, um, it definitely became clear that, like, there was some funny business going on with Ted Gunderson um, mm-hmm. that would suggest that maybe he was, in fact, a limited hangout or doing a kind of counter-psyop, almost in a way that, like, Aquino and Gunderson were, in a way, like, doing a kind of a kayfabe professional wrestling kind of thing on Geraldo and Oprah and all these other shows they went on. And, in fact, the one thing that, like, bears that out is I think I've listened to a lot of um uh, Ed Opperman episodes where he discusses uh, Ted Gunderson and he's very kind of like suspe- he knows a lot about Ted Gunderson and kind of suspicious of him and I guess at one point he interviewed one of Ted Gunderson's ex-girlfriends who was a McMartin parent a, a parent one of the children who accused abuse and like while he was down there he kind of like offered his services and got really involved in the McMartin trial which interestingly you know collapsed with no convictions and he like started shacking up with one of these like single parents uh or whatever and was like i think either she was living with him down in manhattan beach or he was living with her but she mentioned at opperman that uh on a regular basis like ted gardnerson would talk on his cell phone every day uh which was still new in the mid 80s but uh he would talk on his cell phone every day with michael aquino 
And uh, like Ed a- Ed Auburnman asked him like why was he talking on the phone with Michael Aquino and she said because he wanted to feel important. And so okay. that's always stuck in my craw is like what sus. the fuck like uh, yeah. you want to feel important why are you friends with Michael Aquino bro like you were sitting that's across weird. from him on these talk shows saying that like basically like he's probably connected to like and, and I know in like his lectures and writing I think he literally would like accuse Aquino all the time of being like the mastermind of this program just like John DeCamp and other people and you know Kathy O'Brien and Fritz Springmeier like these people all finger Aquino but yet he was like talking on the phone with him every day uh yeah, like that's, that's very odd uh yeah very weird and yeah and he also had a heavy kind of evangelical christian kind of bias i think to his uh the the way he would construct these narratives or make these allegations about how these networks worked and he really kind of i mean i think he talked about like the monarch angle but he seemed to like really focus maybe in his in you know in his defense he would say it was to like get these evangelical churches he was lecturing at kind of on his side uh to mm-hmm. make them understand this is a demonic plot that was happening or something or a satanic conspiracy but it also definitely like it tainted it for the wider population that like wasn't evangelical and probably even some that were that like this is too wacky this isn't real what george hw bush is like a sat a blood drinking satanist and you know they're running like child abuse networks like come on so uh, yeah, he strikes me, and in terms of his the end results he got for the culture, he didn't really seem to, like, produce a lot of, like, new information. He would just sort of show up and then, like, publicize what was already there, but then maybe kind of editorialize it a little bit or, like, put a little spin on it that, I don't know. I, I think we, he deserves a deep dive, um, I guess yeah. is what, I, what I'm getting at. Great. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah um, uh he is interesting yeah i think he's a super interesting figure uh and i think that there could definitely be a whole episode about him uh yeah we should leave that question answered directly we're gonna do an episode uh once you yeah. live in hangout private eye psyop dude maybe all three uh yeah i don't yeah. know uh, yeah, yeah maybe for private eye i feel like you know well he was an investigator of sorts um that was his technical job he also popped up in the johnny gosh stuff too i forget exactly in what capacity but i remember it being one of the podcasts i was listening to about it they uh they cast his sudden popping up as kind of weird and suspicious Mm. and i don't know to what extent weird stuff around that another person who weirdly popped up uh bonacci uh yeah and i I, there might even be interactions between those two for a certain period of time i'd have to double check that but uh but yeah yeah kind of an interesting similar dynamic uh kind of going on there yeah, exactly. Yeah. The same kind of insider type of thing where it's like, yeah, I, I was there to kidnap Johnny Gosh, so I can tell you that, like, he was kidnapped by a ritual abuse network or whatever. It's like, well, like, you did it? Like, what? <laughs> like, uh, you know. Um, I mean, I'm, so, I'm so. not ruling that out. I think when we do a, a Johnny Gosh, like a Where's Johnny kind of deep dive uh i can refresh maybe with all this new information well, yeah i mean of, i'm not ruling it out um, either but i'm just saying that like if you were in fact responsible like you know the, if you exactly so the idea that you the would announce where, like, it you did it yeah if you were controlled to the point that you did it like why should we trust you now you know what i mean like that's the thing uh or trust your if, choice if to true. come forward right now yeah like, ex- exactly at this time, you know, when you're yeah. in jail and could be maybe like murdered i don't know um yeah like, it's odd uh, yeah like ty like, gunderson it's, is it's one of those people whatever you believe uh, yeah gunderson <laughs> is one of those people that if like half the stuff he's saying is true it's a it seems a little odd and surprising that like nobody assassinated him 
because he was actually an FBI agent and he was, you know, had some level of authority uh, to, to speak on these topics and, uh, you know, could be taken seriously. So the idea that, you know, he claimed that, you know, people had threatened him over the years and, you know, he had a lot of exciting stories about, you know, being harassed and, you know, all these things. But uh, he died, I think, of maybe cancer uh, at a kind of ripe old age in 2011. So uh, I think even some people said, like, oh, the CIA gave him cancer. But, like, right. I, I don't know. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's hard, um, really, really hard to tell with that. But, uh, yeah. yeah, it's that interesting thing of, like, why didn't they come after him so as hard as they did with, like, Alicia Owen or Troy Bonner? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, I think, uh, moving on here, we got two more, um, you want to read from, uh, from whole mama? Yeah, again? sure. Let's see again from, from, uh, yo mama slash yo mama thoughts on DB Cooper. The fact that it's never been solved makes the idea of it being a military intelligence or CIA guy seem probable. And I remember seeing a probable Twitter Epstein victim make a thread about it, claiming that DB Cooper was none other than William Colby. I'm not <laughs> sure if she ever gave any proof for the claim, but I'm not opposed to the idea. All right. Uh, maybe, um, I didn't read that thread. Um, I, yeah, I, I want to say like, this, this has a vibe of, I want to say, is this like Kirby Summers that Epstein, uh, well, she's, a, I don't know, actually, she's not technically an Epstein victim, but she was a victim of somebody like Epstein and tweets about it all the time. I don't, I'm... At, at least there's a couple accounts like that, including uh, Virginia Jeffrey, who has tweeted like some QAnon adjacent stuff uh, in mm-hmm. in like recent months yeah. where mm-hmm. adjacent. Yeah, adjacent. But I yeah, really think that she didn't quite understand what she was signaling. I think that people took that's it, possible from my appraisal yeah. of it. I think that, yeah, you know, I don't really don't know her. I don't really follow her. So I don't know. Like, I'm not to like, yeah. you know, uh, sanction her at all. But my reading of that particular thing was that she was like, you know. She said, like, you know, save the children or whatever, like, where we go when we go all. I don't think she knew that that was saying. I, I think maybe she said where we go when we go all or something like that, but I don't think she yeah, knew. Yeah, that, that's quite possible. Uh, that's quite possible. It seems like maybe and she didn't, you know. Yeah. She didn't say, like, and, MAGA or anything, you know. Uh, yeah, and, or, like, like I... Sent me. Yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, yeah. I definitely... Um, I, I, I tend to believe all these allegations about things that, like, directly happened to them in terms of... Epstein and the people that he was, you know, connected to and the famous people that, you know, they were trafficked to and all that stuff. Um, but like, uh, the, uh, like sometimes I see some of these accounts, not necessarily the, the, the two that I just mentioned, but kind of like throwing out like some pretty hot kind of items, uh, about history, things like that maybe might be in the same vein as like DB Cooper was actually William Colby. And, uh, <laughs> I'm not familiar. Yeah, actually, that does kind of have a sort of like, um, you know, uh, JFK Jr. is still alive and he's, he's Q or whatever. Or he's like some Trump aide, like who like vaguely yeah. not even really looks like JFK Jr. Yeah. Like, uh, Everything, like, has, like, American history has to be, like, an episode of, like, Lost or something, you know, where it's like, oh, my God, like, this guy's actually JFK Jr., like, yeah, you know, or it has yeah, to be, like, a Marvel it, movie where it's like, oh, my God, like, it's been Magneto this whole time, like, you know. You know, uh, as wild as that would be, I mean, we just talked about um, William Colby, you know, I mean, we talked about his weird involvement in Franklin, we talked about his, uh, he was legal I mean, counsel why for would the William Nugent Colby Hand Bank. Rob a bank? 
That's the uh, thing. I don't know. The, he would just he he robs banks by like signing pieces of paper and making phone calls. He doesn't need to. That's just my impression is that it would unless he was trying to relive some of his like glory OSS days as a, as a Jedberg uh, paratrooper over like Belgium and wanted to like do this for the kicks. Like I don't understand why like a former CIA director would hijack a plane it just seems that that seems kind of yeah like a little bit of like a tv plot kind of idea i've always that... been partial to the Dwayne weber uh thing the you know i i can just you know uh Dwayne weber identity theory for db cooper uh you know he was someone who like on his deathbed said like i don't know i guess it just stuck with me like his wife's account of it like the way that she told the story of him just being like I'm Dan Cooper, like, you know, on his deathbed and like, you know, uh, how she said, I guess it stuck with me how she said that he used to talk in his sleep and be like, no, I left fingerprints on the plane, you know, like stuff like that. (laughs) Uh, and he had like an old knee injury that he said was from a plane jump or whatever. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't, I, I, I I, I personally wouldn't rule out, though, that, like, he was a military intelligence or CIA guy, like, doing it for some reason. Either he went rogue or he Maybe, realized he yeah. could do this and get away with it. I I don't really know, but it is, I mean, it, it is an intriguing case. Um, I, yeah. I think, I don't know how many, like, tentacles stretch out from it necessarily that kind of make it uh, kind of an illuminating kind of... um mystery story that that ties somebody did mention something in the grotto uh kind of related to this about uh what was it called like the bluegrass mafia Mm -hmm. oh i'm sorry it was the bluegrass conspiracy an inside story of power greed drugs and murder and i guess there was there was a a rich blue blood from kentucky who had the very strange acronym for his name i forget what it was but it ended up being like he was like act the second and so his name is like act two which is kind of i don't know just kind of interesting from the oh yeah andrew carter thornton the second a former lexington narcotics officer who turned to dealing drugs and i guess he died by parachuting out of an airplane with 150 pounds of cocaine strapped to him in the mid 80s mm-hmm. and forty eight hundred dollars okay. in cash two automatic weapons several knives rope night vision goggles six krugerrands and keys to a plane i guess maybe yeah his parachute failed and um he landed in a dude's driveway in knoxville tennessee and uh the plane in which thornton was flying was discovered a few hours later crash in a rugged mountainous area of north carolina unoccupied no flight plan had been filed for it this shocking death in plane crash brought to light revelations and allegations about a scandal involving cops politicians and high society in central kentucky with drugs weapons and murder um this actually i'd never heard of this book before but it sounds really fascinating and i guess somebody was bringing it up uh in you know connection to you know, if they were doing this, if these like blue blood drug trafficker people were doing this in Kentucky, that I don't know, it seems a little bit like oddly similar to DB Cooper uh, with a big sack of money uh, parachuting on a plane disappearing. Um, and maybe this guy would have disappeared if his parachute hadn't failed or something. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about DB Cooper. Uh, there might be you know some uh, deeper one interesting wrinkle to it is that i think that like that did kind of like that model of plane hijacking 
did maybe influence people to think like you know that's kind of what people expected when a plane was hijacked you know for a long time that they would be took taken someplace like you know uh and like extorted or, or somehow like you know in some way uh that the people on the plane would be fine you know uh but, yes yes that yeah. was the dramatic reversal of 9-11 where yeah. they th- <laughs> uh, that was so. the, one of the horrors of it because yeah it, i mean totally like in the 70s there were a decent amount of plane hijackings they and they usually would be like we're gonna fly to like libya or something yeah and a lot of them were copycats of this because if db cooper did it you know a lot of people thought that they could as well um interesting yeah and they would fly to some weird place you know yeah it's a fascinating story. The only unsolved air hijacking in uh, in history. Yeah. Besides yeah, uh, besides MH three seventy, of course. Yeah, and nine eleven. Nine eleven. Yeah, definitely an unsolved um, hijacking. Um, yes, okay. Yeah. Um, I, maybe we'll yeah. come back. I, I'd actually like to come back to the bluegrass uh, yeah. conspiracy. I'm maybe that'll lead us other, back. To... I'm open to other explanations. Uh, there, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I maybe uh, my take is a bit of a normie one. Uh, people might. I uh, have doubts about about this theory. I you know I guess I'm not a big D.B. Cooper uh, aficionado, but I yeah I've always been uh, kind of leaning towards that ex- Dwayne Weber uh, as being D.B. Cooper. But I don't know. I would say if it if it kind of pops up and like intersects with any other thing that we're researching, then that might trigger uh, you know getting on the list. Um, but yeah, I've never been. I'm not like a huge. Uh, Stan of the uh, D.B. Cooper mythos, uh, though yeah. I do find it I mean, interesting. William Colby doesn't not look like the composite sketch of D.B. Cooper, I guess. <laughs> uh, uh, I could, uh, yeah, I guess he, he always wears these thick glasses. If he took off the glasses, like, maybe. Uh, yeah. But also, it doesn't, like, super look like him. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, I guess that's true. Yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it doesn't super anyway. look like him. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But- uh, okay, so we can uh, we can move on to the final question here, which All right, uh, we did it. I think okay. yeah, we did it. All right, two forty five. So I think question. we're coming in, and I think we won't say as much about this because this is definitely this is probably going to be a contra chapter at some point. I think this mm-hmm. uh, what this question is getting at, and this is also by um, Joe Mama, Yo Mama, etc. And uh, says, since you guys are do going all out on Iran Contra, awesome stuff, by the way. Any chance thank of you, you guys getting? Thank you. Yeah, thank you, thank you, appreciate that. Um, yes. Any chance of you guys getting into the South American side of things, specifically the cocaine coup in Bolivia? I read Spanish, but I don't know where to start with to get a good narrative. I think a good place to start is the peeling off of Panama from Colombia and all the skullduggery necessary to keep the Panama separate these last hundred years. Going to do some reading on my own, but anything you know that ties this stuff to your current Iran-Contra narrative would be appreciated. The Bolivian coup was in 80, just in time to massively boost the cocoa harvest in Bolivia and kick off the 80s in the style we all remember them by. Um, So, like, yeah, like, spot on. Yes, exactly. Uh, It was in 1980, and... uh, uh, I mean, I think... um, I also have to discover more sources on the cocaine coup in 1980, as it's like popularly known, because it does intersect very directly with like the Iran Contra enterprise. And actually, the the first person to really like alert me to it was Mike Levine, the former narco, the former narc who was on the Montel Williams show that we talked about in Contra Two. 
um, the former, you know, friend of Kiki Camarena, who was mur- who was tortured to death by Felix Rodriguez, and uh, and he mentioned in one of his books, uh, and I think he might have been even like tangentially involved in a kind of narcotics undercover operation that like stumbled upon this network and then was told to back off and like not pursue it because it was CIA. Um, he, he talks about how, yeah, the cocaine coup in 1980, um, I think I, I may have slightly misspoke, uh, last episode where I said that it was like Hugo Banzer was the dictator that came into power. He was actually the dictator that came in from 1971 to 78, but the thing that he had in common with Luis Garcia Meza Tejada, who was a Bolivian general who did the cocaine coup in 1980, is that they were both closely advised by uh, the Butcher of Lyon, uh, Klaus Barbie, basically. Um, and Klaus Barbie was a main figure in advising the Bolivian government and other South American right-wing dictatorships during the Operation Condor years in the 1970s. So SS Hauptschirmführer uh, Klaus Barbie, uh, who was an absolute psychotic maniac who trained the security forces in torture and disappearing, uh, you know, undesirable left-wing elements in the country he was like directly involved and of course he was a node in kind of the underground like reich network if you will um yeah. also known as like Spina or you know the spider network or the yeah. or odessa is another name for and, it uh, he was connected to thomas slick you know of uh you know the bigfoot guy uh, uh he remember, was that, he that, was that letter uh, exactly exactly to, yeah I'd forgotten uh, so what context knew, Klaus Barbie came up in. I, I forgot uh, about the There was a CIA the letter. Yeah. There was a, there was a d- declassified letter from the CIA. Uh, they were talking about there was some allegation from uh, Thomas Slick, who was like a big Yeti hunter. Uh, his secretary had said, you know, that there was some link between him and Klaus Barbie. And they, for some reason, published this document uh, about Thomas Slick saying, like, in reference to the accusation about the war criminal Klaus Barbie... Uh, but it was unclear what the accusation was, uh, or why, like, you know, clearly there was something that they had to do with Thomas Slick and Klaus Barbie, uh, mm-hmm. you know, probably more Klaus Barbie than Thomas Slick, because the whole thing was about denying, uh, Thomas Slick, you know, like, their connection with Thomas Slick, but they didn't even bother yeah. to deny their connection with Klaus Barbie at all, or even <laughs> mention it. So, course, like, you know, something about that uh, was of uh, concern to them. So, well, once again, uh, I mean, you yes. get you get a connection between Texas oil billionaires because Thomas Slick was like the son of the king of the wildcatters in Texas. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then, of course, you have George H.W. Bush coming into power in 1981 and his extensive family connections to the Nazi underground and honestly, the Nazi overground uh, in the 30s and 40s with his gr- with his father, uh, Prescott. And. And, um, yeah, I guess what what even Wikipedia says here in very upfront terms about the 1980 cocaine coup, uh, which I think gives a good, like, uh, short overall thing is, uh, you know, there was there was uh, there was like a disputed election and uh, a kind of I don't know, uh, there was there was a lot of um, mm, uh, there was a lot of political uh, chaos going on in Bolivia, which was disrupted on July 17, 1980, by the violent, violent military coup of General Luis Garcia Meza, cousin of the deposed President Guayler, uh, Guayler, um, or Guayler 
who fled the country, reportedly financed by cocaine traffickers and supported by European mercenaries recruited by Klaus Barbie, former Gestapo chief in Lyon, the coup became the rule of the first junta of commanders of the armed forces, one of the darkest periods in Bolivian history. Arbitrary arrests by paramilitary units, torture, and disappearances with the assistance of Argentine advisors destroyed the opposition. The government involvement in cocaine trafficking resulted in international isolation for Bolivia, except for the U.S. Uh, cocaine exports reportedly totaled $850 million in the 1980-81 period of the Garcia Meza regime, twice the value of official government exports. The coca dollars were used to buy the silence or active support of military officers, but Garcia Meza, who failed to gain support in the military, faced repeated coup attempts and was pressured to resign on August 4th, 1981. Uh, so, uh, so this actually happened before... Uh, Ronald Reagan was elected. But according to Mike Levine, this had the CIA fingerprints kind of all over it. They wanted this coup. And a big part of it, and Klaus Barbie, who from time to time did work as a CIA contract agent, he was not only responsible for training these death squads and security forces and things like that, but he was also responsible for applying a kind of German cartel industrialized production model to the cocaine industry in Bolivia um, and basically like rationalize the production so that you could have like massive industrial farms like pro growing and processing this coca turning it into cocaine and and you know uh, being able to create you know vastly increased amounts of it and then move it up the pipeline through Central America and I mean uh, sell it where else the United States and so um, what Mike Levine basically says like that was really the core so like quite literally uh, and, and then at, at some point maybe it was after um, Garcia Meza was overthrown in 1981 that we saw the Medellin cartel rise up in Colombia next door. And then they became the mass production kind of enterprise that was growing and like actually making the cocaine and then sending it up to uh, various Central American, you know, the uh, criminal elements and uh, the drug cartels in Mexico, which were all had relationships with the CIA uh, at this time. And then, you know, again, with the help of the U.S. government, like snuck into America, Mena, Arkansas, Miami and other places. So really, it's like if you can trace it back, like the the explosion of cocaine in uh, in the 1980s was a result of like nazi war criminals using like german industrial techniques to build a mass production cocaine pipeline for sale in the united states and to fund probably uh anti-communist operations all over central and south america as well as probably afghanistan and other places as well um and i do see here that uh that cocaine uh, officially surpassed coffee as the chief Colombian Colombian export in 1982, a year after uh, Garcia Meza was overthrown. So that would be, that's a thread I'll probably follow up. Um, uh, oh yeah, look at this. Um, at the end of 1981 and the beginning of 1982, members of the Medellin cartel, the Colombian military, the U.S.-based corporation Texas Petroleum, the Colombian legislature, small industrialists, and wealthy cattle ranchers came together in a series of meetings in Puerto Boyaca and formed a paramilitary organization known as Muerte a Sequestradores, 
death to kidnappers uh, to defend uh, their okay. or MAS to defend their economic interests, probably from the FARC, I guess, and to provide protection for local elites from kidnappings and extortions. By 1983, Colombian internal affairs had registered 240 political killings by MAS death squads, mostly community leaders, elected officials, and farmers. So uh, that's kind of a they, they funded like and. Uh, yeah, they they farmed all these organizations uh, that had like death squad elements attached to them. Uh, they built schools uh, whose stated purpose was the creation of a, a quote patriotic and anti-communist educational environment. Um, and uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, so there was the ACDEGAM was the uh, Asociación Campesina de Ganaderos y Agricultores del magdalena medio <laughs> very long acronym yeah. um association of middle magdalena ranchers and farmers by the mid-1980s they'd undergone significant growth in 1985 drug trafficker pablo escobar began funneling large amounts of cash into the organization to pay for equipment training and weaponry uh, money for social projects was cut off and redirected towards strengthening the mas they had computers and ran a communication center that worked in coordination with the state telecommunications office they had 30 pilots and a source of an assortment of fixed wing aircraft and helicopters british israeli and u.s military instructors were hired to teach at paramilitary training centers so uh i'm i'm willing to go out on a limb and say that yeah like klaus barbie got the game got the ball rolling in bolivia and then uh after their their right-wing uh fascist dictator got kind of kicked out uh they moved over to the next most viable place uh colombia and teamed up with, uh, you know, and then you see groups like Texas Petroleum, who is now today known as, uh, drumroll, Texaco, <laughs> oh, wow. uh, which okay. is a subsidiary of the Chevron Corporation, which is a right. uh, spinoff wow, of Standard Oil. Sure. Yeah, huh, <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. Right. So there you go. The same Rockefeller, Bush, like Texas oil kind of interests, uh, all swirling around the building of an industrial cocaine pipeline in these South American countries. So, yes. uh, yeah. So that's just a little, I guess, taste of uh, what, yeah. you know, Contra 6, 7, get into, That doesn't even get into the Yeti connection. And who knows, <laughs> you know, it's there. Uh, no, it doesn't. Know. It doesn't. Um, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, I feel like there might be something here with, like, you know, the Yeti. Because, uh, I mean, they can really travel. Like, they can really climb over the wall easily, you know. So, yeah. Uh, maybe that's part of the utility but um i'm saying the, the ultimate drug trafficker the ultimate they drug could mules. be yeah they could be the ultimate mules you know mm. but i guess they're naked so they don't really have any well I, I don't know i don't know if they would do that um you know uh i think their propensity for attacking like u.s marines and u.s yeah. soldiers in vietnam throwing rocks at u.s soldiers in vietnam um, I don't think they would ideologically be copacetic with uh, yeah, they working don't with these seem... fascist drug cartels. Yeah, you're probably right. They don't seem to be down with that. Um, although, yeah, um, they would be dangerous. And I mean, this is why it's imperative that, you know, this is why the great race uh, is on to master uh, Sasquatch. Um, you know, that was the real, that was the real arms race. Um, uh-huh, but yeah, uh-huh, I would, yeah. I would love to know, <laughs> I would just love to know, but, uh, <laughs> what Klaus Barbie, what Klaus Barbie knew, I would love to know. Um, yeah. Who did know, he encounter uh, in those, in the jungles of Bolivia and Colombia? Yeah. 
who or yeah who or what um but uh yeah but uh no yeah that's definitely uh yeah uh i think that definitely could be a super interesting episode the panama canal is uh really interesting uh, yeah, topic. I hadn't thought about like, the Panama uh, Canal and the, 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 the battles over. Of course, there's Noriega in the 80s who Bush, like, literally, like, made up a fake reason to invade to, like, steal his, uh, like, stash of, like, blackmail material uh, that he allegedly had. Um, that's another one that one day uh, I, I'd like to get to in the next month or two is, like, the screenwriter with no hands, uh, mm-hmm. Gary DeVore, the writer of Time Cop and Raw Deal, who was found mysteriously oh, murdered. Cop. What's that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, time yeah, cop. Yeah, yeah, time and, cop. Yeah, he was he was found dead under very mysterious circumstances in the California desert after uh, going off to work on a movie that was like a thriller about the invasion of Panama that was going to tell like the true story about why it happened, and it, it led right back to our favorite guy. George H.W. Bush uh, trying to cover right. his own ass. Uh, well, that was a big theme of, of Smedley Butler's in War is a Racket, right? Uh, you know, uh, someone who uh, sort of uh, blew the whistle on, like, one of the sort of earliest or one of the most famous uh, early uh, 20th century conspiracy theories, uh, the, the business The business plot, plot you know? with a, yeah, yeah, featuring yeah. Prescott Bush and yeah, all these same people, should, the DuPonts. Yeah, and... we should do an episode on that, because I feel like there is a lot of haziness around it. Like, people know, like, that it happened, but there isn't really, uh, you know, people don't understand it, like, uh, specifically all the players involved, like, you know, Smedley Butler's career, like, there's a lot there. It's true. Uh, I think it's a, it's a pretty remarkable document and he's a pretty remarkable guy for the fact that he's sort of like not a, uh, for somebody who's like a career military general and not a Marxist to kind of almost like through his own personal experience, like realize what war actually is, you know, in the early 20th century uh, is pretty kind of impressive. I think that a lot of them know. Uh, I think that he was maybe uh, the, like, someone who had, like, a problem with it, which is to his credit. Uh, But I think that a lot of people, like, who are, like, you know, officers in the U.S. military, like, have some sense of what he described. True, Uh, true. And then Um, you learn to sublimate it if you want to kind of move up in the ranks and go along to get along. You learn to either get down with it or compartmentalize it in your head or come up with some kind of you know yeah uh, or you always knew and never cared you know yeah yeah or just you just Uh, don't concern yourself with it there's a lot of ways people to uh you know uh i'm just following orders i don't know uh i did see some somebody posted the other day that like uh or maybe it was in the grotto or something i forget where i saw it where somebody was talking about like uh maybe they worked for an insurance company or something that dealt with like people getting scammed and like the the biggest target audiences were like foreigners elderly people and military personnel because military personnel tend to be very gullible (laughs) and um which you know as as a baby that's not like totally across the board but i guess it does take a certain amount of like suspension of disbelief to like exist in the military there's a certain yeah you know there's they have like hammer in their head to follow orders like you know yes don't ask questions Uh, if it's not you need to know need to know basis right yeah Yeah. exactly so i think that there might be some kind of conditioning involved that you know causes that to to happen maybe for Um, sure for sure yeah 
Um, okay, uh, well, uh, I, yeah, but I'm sure it's um, not true across the board. Uh, yeah, but yeah, yeah. All right, I think well, we did it. Yeah. I think we're under. I think three we did hours. it. We're Hopefully just at about three hours. I think a lot of these subjects will uh, come back. Uh, you know, they will in a big um, way. As yeah, uh, but yeah, that's a uh, Q and A number two out of the park. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, uh, first, yeah, just thank you to all of our subscribers. You know, uh, yeah, as we look all back the... over two months now uh-huh. to the Little Jihad. Is that how long? Yeah. Uh, I think we've been yeah, around yeah, for th- that's how long the Patreon's been around. I think we've been around since uh, since late August. Uh, so yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. We're wow, we're yeah, three so... or four months in, but uh, mm-hmm. big yeah. wow, big ups crazy. and big thanks to all the subscribers and and all the listeners. Period. Yeah, and the everybody. yeah all the listeners. Period. Anybody that listens to this, uh, yeah, thanks, thanks for listening to it, and um, yeah, and all the acolytes and the Grotto of Truth for uh, yes. all your stimulating discourse and your questions. Yeah, your questions. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, definitely uh, something valuable. Again. Uh, definitely subscribe to Alwara uh, because you know the Grotto is an underappreciated perk to be uh, to be part of the of the Grotto. Really is. Some people just throw a goofy uh, like a, a goofy Patreon you know Discord thing in there uh, you know as a little bonus, but I, I really feel like it's become this beautifully integrated uh, you know appendage. Yeah, and everyone has a nice podcast. vibe. Everyone's nice. You know, it's like everyone a is nice. Vibe, you know, mm-hmm. it's not like. Uh, People have lots of different views in there, you know. We got like mm-hmm. Catholics. We got, mm-hmm. uh, you know, lots of MLs or, or ML adjacent people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got some Muslims, a uh, couple mm-hmm. here and there, uh, you know. But everyone gets along pretty well. Everyone has, you know, it's got a very nice vibe, which, you know, uh, some podcast, uh, some discords, you know, maybe uh, don't have. You know, some of those like others. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, not not a bunch of not like irony really poison happen. subreddit trolls uh, uh yeah like um, crawling out of the something awful basement uh talking about cum yeah. all the time like that's not <laughs> you know no, that's not the vibe uh, in the grotto and is we there love a cum town discord uh i mean i probably know, it's yeah, called twitter no. it's called like it's called yeah, dirtbag it's, it's not, called weird left definitely twitter not that's that what it is. type of vibe uh yeah um and yeah it's nice uh and it's uh yeah very fruitful and chill in there um mm-hmm. so yeah i don't know i don't really have i mean i guess i'm a, i'm uh yeah i guess i'm in some podcast discords i mean most of the ones that i'm in are also are also good but uh yeah i don't know what uh experiences uh people have with them but ours definitely i'm i'm a fan of uh mm-hmm. you know i'm very very pleased with how, how, it's, how it's turned out uh yeah uh and i think yeah it's uh it's got a good good vibe uh and a good discussion raging sure. all throughout the day uh, as we speak it As is. Speak, it is. There's uh, people discussing uh, Burning Man and how it susses all get out. Uh, and <laughs> the human potential movement was perfectly positioned to latch onto the NorCal tech scene as it morphed out of the universities into a business culture. And Ooh, uh, there's already yeah, been, uh, well, 100 emoji on that one, and I'm gonna I'm gonna add to it. Shout out to good, Bones good. For, for that. Oh yeah, comment. shout yeah, out to so Bones. This is the shout kind out of to stuff. Yeah, the, everybody. You know, very, yeah. Deep, deep stuff being discussed uh, mm-hmm. 24-7 in the grotto. Yeah. Uh, we also, yeah. as you know, a little side perk, uh, yeah, for the for the patrons, we do have uh, we do have links to all our show notes. It's uh, yeah, It lags true. behind a little bit. But it's like, a little bit we, behind. Yeah, I update it, like, you know, every once in a while. But, you know, there's a lot there to, to catch up with. Uh, yeah, so 
Uh, we do try, I'm proud to say, to, like, actually, like, reference shit on this podcast instead of just being like, here's what I think. Like, you know, we try to, like, we, we try to give some, we try to dive into some meat and, like, you know, do do a little, at least a little bit of research and, and gather some sources and stuff that uh, that yeah. if anybody else wants to spin off and, and look more into, because we don't all, we don't always have time to be completely uh, thorough at the, at the pace that we kind of record in. So we hope mm. that... You know, with those links and stuff, maybe if somebody, if it sparks, you know, some kind of insight, you know, you can run off and, you know, yeah. uh, follow your own rabbit hole. You yeah, know? and there's, yeah, definitely. We've just added a new channel where people will make, like, media suggestions because they're always popping up in the grotto. Uh, just kind of provide a place to streamline that. So I think that would be pretty fruitful uh mm-hmm. for us mm-hmm. as well honestly um oh yeah, but, yeah. Uh, and yeah, i will be like, filling uh, in the music citations for each episode which i have not done yet but yeah, i know uh, I like will, today with yeah, the 098 thing right now, uh, as of right now we've released like as we're recording this we're we've released episode like uh the last one we re- actually have posted is interlock 28 so the show notes right now are at like twenty three, but I'll 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 update them. I'll update them. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But there's still a lot to go down there. You know, you can read like the whole Cotton Mather oeuvre, and we have some good links, you know, to where you can find all that material. Uh, but yeah. Uh, totally. So, yeah, definitely right. uh, do it uh, if you like the podcast. But uh, regardless, we appreciate your attention, and we hope uh, that you're liking it. Uh, and mm-hmm. yeah. So, uh, we certainly do. Yeah, so, um, so yeah. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll catch everybody back uh, back next.